that was creepy like, voice. <laughs> like, why are you doing a creepy voice? I was definitely like, is this a bit we're doing? I did not, I don't remember having this conversation. <laughs> yes, uh, to deal with, you know, the crazy biblical shit we're about to get into. Them. Let me do a demon voice just because that makes sense. <laughs> you know, we, we joke, but to be honest. I'm not wrong. We might revisit this conversation later. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Real Lit, the show where a college English professor breaks down some of the world's greatest literature in ways that the average person can understand, because guess what? She's drunk while she's doing it. And... (laughs) We also review movies. Uh, If you have been here at Allentown Presents for any amount of time, you recognize my voice. I am Katie, um, the resident cinephile here at Real Lit, and I will be discussing B-movies, quote unquote. I don't think today's movie is a B-movie, but I'm sure many of you do because it's a kid's movie, so overlooked movies movies that maybe intellectual adult society don't think have as much value as other kinds of movies and that just may not be true especially when you're drunk is kind of guaranteed yeah this is gonna be fun to talk about drunk i'm gonna mix all sorts of shit up because everyone's names are too similar in this story i'm very curious because she hasn't that spoiler alert has not told me what she's coming today yet (laughs) and is apparently keeping it a secret because she's very pointedly not even mentioned it yet uh by the way hi i'm sam i'm the aforementioned college professor that um was made to sound way way cooler than is actually reality don't listen Uh, to her she's self-deprecating she's awesome i just Uh, looked over and oh yeah i got a shot sitting right here normally the readers don't get to listen into this part of our thing normally we clinky drink right before but um two demonic voices oh i smelled it that was horrible the two worst no-nos of taking a shot smelling it beforehand and pouring any portion of the tiny amount of liquid (laughs) that you are have to consume quickly yep i'm already sloppy drunk apparently even though i'm not drunk at all (laughs) i definitely like i don't know we're gonna see how today goes yesterday i had like a glass of um sangria when i was at it lunch with my mom and it was really good but I was thinking to myself like I don't drink enough anymore I'm gonna get fucking drunk we're gonna like walk this off afterwards but it wasn't that bad maybe it was because it was so hot and I like sweated it out I don't know what it was but I was surprised that I wasn't like as bad I also drank it over the course of like two and a half hours so like that may have been why and it was just one glass so (laughs) Katie's still making the like the angry cat face like when cats smell like so here's the deal (laughs) I smelled that shot and then tried to sh- tried to take a drink and only ended up drinking like half of it because I spilled some of it on my chin and I had to stop. So then I poured the other half on my drink and then I went to take a drink and it hadn't like, it's just resting at the top. So it was just straight vodka because why the fuck not? <laughs> you, the, the most basic fundamentals of the, uh, taking a shot process have been flipped I on their fucked head. it up from start <laughs> to finish sam from yeah. start <laughs> to finish by the way i totally just threw whiskey into my eyeball that just happened. <laughs> we are off to a an incredibly sloppy start guys this is gonna be 
one for the books i'm sorry this is impossible for you to follow this is a mess (laughs) this is some omen shit okay today let's quit fucking around today is uh a monumentous day we are covering potentially the oldest surviving uh piece of literature in existence yeah (laughs) um one of them definitely up there quite old, pretty old. Um, We are covering the Epic of Gilgamesh today. The Epic of Gilgamesh is, of course, um, an epic poem, technically, because basically all the, like, stories and shit that you read from antiquity and, like, ancient times are in their, what we call, quote-unquote, poems, because they're not written in prose form, because that's just, like, not what they did back then, because usually when they would write stories, they would be they would be transcribing them onto into written form from their oral like versions of what they would say so because of that oral tradition is always very quote-unquote poetic because of the like devices the like rhythmic devices and the poetic devices and the rhetorical devices and the mnemonic devices that they would use to be able to remember the shit that they were spouting out when they would be like off on their oral tradition storytelling like practicing like like theater, like having to memorize your lines. So like the way that they would like get about having to remember that shit is of course they would write it poetically and like have a bunch of repetition and have a bunch of like rhyming stuff sometimes or the way that they would say it would be like that because it's easier. It's just, this is just how humans are. It's easier to (laughs) be able to remember it when it's like got a sing-songy note to it or it's like written in rhythm. So it is a poem. It is regarded regarded scholastically like officially as the earliest surviving notable work of literature like notable is doing like a lot of work in that statement but it's there um and it is technically the second oldest religious text that we have um after the pyramid texts which is a whole other um podcast basically not even not even a whole other episode of this podcast just a whole other podcast so this is essentially what the epic of Gilgamesh is is a literary history of what people believe is potentially a at least partially historical figure known as Gilgamesh it begins with like five uh Sumerian poems that are about this character this character is um a king of Uruk um or Uruk this is from the third dynasty of Ur, uh, and that is circa 2100 BC, just FYI. So hella old, very much old, um, before Jesus old. All these stories, like the Sumerian poems, are now today especially like considered that they are probably independent stories. Like they probably weren't originally intended to be like a full-long epic. They're probably small, like anecdotal stories. And they just were used later as um, as source material to create a combined epic, which is the one that we know today as the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it's the Akkadian um, version or the standard Babylonian ver- version, basically. So the first surviving version of this um, is known as the Old Babylonian version. It um, kind of dates to the 18th century uh, BCE. There's only a few tablets, and by tablets, I'm like, yeah, like clay tablets, like this is <laughs> that's where that shit was this is how old we are so there's only a few tablets of this that really survive the later standard babylonian version like i mentioned um is from the 13th to like the 10th centuries bce so like 
you know, 1300 to 1000 BCE, basically. So out of this later version, there's about, there's more than the older version that we have that are um, in terms of clay tablets that have survived. There's about two thirds more of it um, that we have recovered for that later version than the older versions that we have. So let's just get something out of the way right now. Just, just, just first of all, I just need to get something out of the way when we talk about this right now. Lots of the discussion about what is and is not the story of Epic of Gilgamesh in, in general, much less like reading between the lines on some of the like things that happen in the stories basically, or like why things are happening in the stories are huge interpretive leaps taken by scholars. Like, let's just get that out of the way right now. There are lots and lots of big leaps in, in popular scholastic like interpreting and understanding of the story, just in general. If we're gonna go by the lit like just the bare basics of what the tablets say, there is not a whole lot of quote unquote story attached <laughs> to the Epic of Gilgamesh. It because there's lots of stuff missing. And it's not just like, oh, it's part, we have this whole part and then it like cuts off at the end. No, it is like we have fragments where like this whole clay tablet has sections of it that we can't read right now because it's been fucking rubbed off or it's been, you know, like broken off or whatever, but the tablet is still intact. So I can read down here and I can read up here, but I can't read the middle of this paragraph basically. So there's huge fragments essentially of just missing context and so you, you're reading like, okay, I'm in the middle of this story and I can pretty much piece together that they're talking about this and I can pretty much piece together based on the words that I can, that are still here, that they're arguing about this part of the subject that they're talking about. But filling in those blanks, like scholars have done a whole lot in terms of like historical research and um, basically the way that they've tried to like fill in these kind of gaps is learning obviously as much as you can about like the historical context of when this was would have been talked about and like also cross-referencing other historical accounts of things that we know. And of course, also just cross-referencing factual things that we know. So like archeological things that confirm like oh, okay, so they're talking about like this huge like earthquake. And yes, there was, we do have recorded based on archeology span stuff and looking at landscapes that like there was, um, you know, this many earthquakes around this time in the BC era. So yeah, this is definitely possible that they're talking about this earthquake that happened in this time. So um, it's, it's a lot of pulling from different scholarly fields <laughs> um, just all over the place to be able for for literature scholars to try and inform what the actual story is going on. Um, so with that said, here's what I'm going to do when we're talking about this. I'm going to talk to you about what me, Sam, can, in my opinion, in my quote unquote expertise, I'm not an expertise in um, Sumerian literature whatsoever, um, or ancient literature for that matter, but like I did cover and like learn a bunch of ancient literature stuff when I was getting my undergrad and my postgrad because I was considering doing ancient lit for a long time, but I ended up not choosing that. But so, long story short, the moral of that stupid sentence that didn't need to be said was I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination like some of these people are, but 
you're not listening to this because you want to listen to Dr. You know, so-and-so who literally like got eight PhDs on the Epic of Gilgamesh. You're, learning, you're listening to this because you want to hear a drunk college professor talk to you about dumb shit in classic lit. So that's what you're going to get. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you basically about what me, based on my expert knowledge, can say is my opinion about what is going on based on the bare facts of what we have from the test from the tablets and also I, I'm going to reference sometimes what other scholars say is going on and I'm going to tell you just point blank in my personal opinion as a scholar and honestly like what many people now are like more contemporary opinions are in like modern day scholars of looking at these subjects in ancient literature and trying to like refocus and like basically change how we look at ancient stuff and to like stop trying to like apply certain standards that we would consider just as basic today and like try and remind ourselves like actually no ancient you know history and ancient cultures were potentially very very different from what we know and like we need to really just stop like trying to insist that like things were standards when we actually don't really know whether or not these were standards or not of like how people behaved so you're just gonna get a big mixed bag of me talking to you about this is what the tablet says this is what people have kind of piecemealed together is what it likely means this is what i think it means this is what other scholars think it means. And I'm telling you right now what they think it means is either A, in my opinion, plausible, or B, like pulled out of their, their, their left ass cheek, basically, because it doesn't have just like any moral, any more, you know, substance than me saying like the sky is orange or something. Like that kind of level of just like, okay, well, you can say things, but everyone can say things. Whether or not it's true is the question. Yeah, that, that type of level of stuff. Sorry, that was a really long rant, but I just wanted to get it out of the way now so that I don't have to keep reminding people when I make comments throughout this entire thing of like, this is just my opinion. This is just, you know, the bare facts say this and this is the interpretation. Now you know all that. So I'm not going to rehash that every time I say shit like this <laughs> for the rest of this story. Okay. There is essentially over a 2000 year, like, frame of time basically that we have distinct sources of this epic this um, story of the epic of Gilgamesh the oldest ones the old Babylonian ones are essentially around 1800 BC they are the earliest surviving tablets for a single epic of Gilgamesh narrative not just um, separated poems that likely weren't meant to be a full like huge epic the modern translations of, of the Epic of Gilgamesh mostly pull from the um, later Akkadian versions. So the standard Babylonian texts essentially. And then they use all of them, like I've mentioned, to basically fill in the gaps of each other when they can. But this is also a problem because there are some surviving tablets and different um, versions of the same stories that do have different details associated with them and do retell some of the very obviously the same stories. They're meant to be the same stories, but they tell them very differently and have different things added and different things that aren't in it that are in the other ones and things like that. So um, basically historians just kind of like take things with a grain of salt and try and like add things when it makes the most sense to and like if it doesn't make the most sense to try and reconcile them, then they just like leave them separate and just say like, 
okay, well, this is this person's version. This is this area's version. Like that city, uh, 20 miles over there had their version of this story basically. And then we had this version over here <laughs> in this city um, type of shit going on. There's like, like 15,000 cuneiform tablets, Assyrian tablets of, or tablets of Assyrian cuneiform basically um, that we have surviving there in the library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh by the Austin, by Austin Henry Lyre. This is when they, this is where they were discovered, the library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh by Austin Henry Lyre. Those those fragments in the tablets are the things that we're talking about, basically. Essentially, the reason that we, or one of the kind of major reasons that we believe that there is a historical figure that is Gilgamesh, um, or at least that Gilgamesh is supposed to represent, is because there are artifacts from around like 2600 BC that kind of confirm via other more historical figures that we have a lot more proof actually existed and like referencing them with Gilgamesh basically or with people who were related to Gilgamesh like his dad um so that is stuff that we look at and say like okay so there is a potential that somebody at least was the influence or the inspiration behind Gilgamesh the character if not an actual historical character himself there are two major versions, like I said, um, there's a shit ton of smaller ones and smaller stories and little poems, but there's the two major ones. We're going to talk today about the standard Babylonian version, basically. Um, and this is, like I said, the older one, um, the Akkadian version of the epic, where they essentially took the more scattered Sumerian poems and they kind of like created a fuller, um, longer epic associated with it. So it's got 12 tablets associated with it. Um, this is kind of like the 12 chapters, basically. One thing, this will make sense when I get there, but I'll just like give the listeners a heads up now. The tw- there's 12 tablets in it, like I just said. The first 11 are clearly an attempt to like make a chronological story, like an epic that like makes sense chronologically. <laughs> and then there's the 12th tablet that is part of the epic. Like it makes sense. It's by the same scribe. It's for the same project. Like there are notes and stuff in the margins and things like that. Like meant it shows that this was meant to be a part of this tablet collection and that it was meant to be right here but we don't know why because it it is it is a very very huge outlier you'll understand (laughs) when we get to it about like its content and like what it's covering it doesn't make any sense but it's part of it so we'll get there and you'll understand immediately why i'm giving you this caveat right now because it's silly it doesn't make any sense but it's there so we're going to cover it this is based on stephanie daly's translation Um, She is not the most recent um, or the most like liked and revered translation now. Um, There's a much later one. uh, It's by a guy named George, essentially, but (laughs) not his first name, by the way. I don't just know this guy. I'm like, yeah, George, my next door neighbor. No, uh, his last name is George. Sorry. I just realized that's very strange. My version is by Stephanie Daly, though, and so, like, that's just what you're going to get from me, because this is the one that I have, and um, I definitely want to buy, like, the newer version, like, I hear great things about it, but I'm also broke, and I, like, want to buy other things, so, you know, eventually I'll buy it. I've definitely, like, read portions of it or whatever, but I don't have the newer one, I just have mine, so this is Stephanie Daly's translation, basically. Tablet one, this is the Epic of Gilgamesh, the standard Babylonian version. We are talking about Gilgamesh. That is just straight up front. They kind of don't really mince words a whole lot. 
they're like, we're talking about the greatest person ever. His name is Gilgamesh. He's the king of Uruk. <laughs> and this, this guy is two thirds God and one third man, we are told. Um, so he has a mom goddess. We'll talk about her later. And then a human father, basically. So he is a lot of God, but he is also part human. That's not so, how genetics works, but okay. <laughs> already, already. <laughs> I'm already skeptical because that's You're not right. how shit works. Can I stop you right there? Can I stop you right there? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he's a demigod. Yeah, essentially he's a demigod uh, based on obviously the story. So right away, here's what I'm going to tell you. Lots of people say that this is the story. Uh, this is how the story begins. I'm going to tell it to you and I'm going to tell you why this is bullshit. <laughs> people say, okay, this is how it starts out. They talk to you about Gilgamesh. They tell you he's demigod and that they tell you, oh, this is a story about Gilgamesh and he was oppressing his people and his people are crying out to the gods in, um, in the area for help because they are upset because Gilgamesh is essentially taking oppressive actions against the people by doing what is called a, um, essentially like what they call a, a Lord's right or a King's right. So it's this really old antiquated thing. Well, I guess it's not that old because lots of people definitely later on in history still do it, but they do this like, it's this really antiquated idea of like, the king is the king so like everyone in his under his people are essentially his even when the women are like marrying husbands they technically still belong to the king so the king sleeps with the brides on the wedding night to like basically get that the bride ready for her husband so oh, like yeah. yeah so a there is like maybe 15% of this claim that has any sort of actual basis in the tablet text itself. There are parts of the tablet that, at least the Akkadian version of this, that make it clear that this is something that he was doing. It does not make it clear whatsoever that this was considered oppressive by his people. It also does not make it clear whatsoever in the Akkadian version technically speaking of the actual text that we have that the people were the ones crying out and that they hated this and that this is what spawned the next part of the story because that's just not there in the thing i'm going to read to you it's very very short i promise this is not me like doing the thing that i usually do where i like just quote the entire thing at everyone so this is the the text from the actual thing that they are pulling this interpretation from. The young men of Uruk became dejected in their private quarters. Gilgamesh would not leave any son alone for his father. Day and night, his behavior was overbearing. Powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert, Gilgamesh would not leave young girls alone, daughters of warriors, the brides of young men. The gods often heard their complaints. The gods of heaven, there's a gap, then the lord of Uruk, did Aruru create such a rampant wild bull? Is there no rival? They do a repeat of things, a very normal poem thing. But then he said, they call and say, you, Aruru, you created mankind. Now create someone for him to match the ardor of his energies. Let them be regular rivals and let the Uruk be allowed peace. That is 
the text that they are pulling all of this bullshit <laughs> that they just talked about from, basically. So what you can understand from this is, yes, the people were frustrated with Gilgamesh at this point because of his actions. It is absolutely not clear that his actions are oppressive in the sense that they are related to his Lord's right actions, even though he does do this later. Th those are not linked right here in this moment, nor I just need to point this out here, <laughs> FYI, and especially it's gonna become really important in a second. They say this about the girls, but they say this about the guys too. The very first thing that I just said <laughs> was, hold on, I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna bring it back. The young men of Uruk became dejected in their private quarters. Gilgamesh would not leave any son alone for his father. And then he says later in a mirror statement of this, he would not leave young girls alone. The daughters of warriors, the brides of young men. I don't know about y'all, but if you're going to read the thing that says that he's talking about not leaving women alone and you're going to say, oh, that's because he's fucking them on their wedding nights. Okay, what does that mean about the statement about the men? Because <laughs> it's the same statement. I'm telling you right now, <laughs> it's the same exact thing, basically. People then step in here and say, oh, well, this means that probably um, he exhausts the young men through through games and through testing their strength and for, you know, making them do hard labor, for building all of the shit that he likes to build or for making them come on his like war missions with him. That's how he's not leaving the men alone. That's how he's right. like- Is his dick called hard labor? Cause that's this seems more accurate. Legitimately what I'm telling you right now. Okay, because like, I'm sorry, you cannot hold the same standard to these same statements just because you have this idea in your head that ancient people were homophobic or something. And therefore obviously he was fucking the woman but he wasn't fucking the men. I'm sorry, that's just not there in the text right now. <laughs> no, it is <laughs> known. It is legitimately known that ancient folks we're open to all kinds of shit. Here's my statement right now in terms of Sam reading the text of this shit and interpreting it based on my expertise and the shit that we know now today as a modern like work, you know, community of scholars. This dude was apparently fucking men and women day and night. It does not read like, oh my God, the men are just so tired because he's constantly making them fight and making them do this. And oh God, the women are just so upset because they're getting raped on their wedding nights. That's not what I just read. What I just read was this dude be fucking all the damn time. This dude is like, I'd be fucking your sons. I'd be fucking your daughters. Like I just want to fuck all the time. And yeah. like, hide your husband because we raping everybody out here. <laughs> like And like, y'all like, my sexual energy just cannot hold up to Gilgamesh right now. This dude is just like sex all the time. He just be wanting the dick and the badge all the time. Can God, God, can you hear me? Can you create a partner for this dude that he loves so much that he's gonna fuck them the whole time and he stops fucking us all because like, we're so tired. We can't deal with this anymore. Yeah. That's what I just heard. Just yeah. FYI. Yeah. So when this happens, they cry up to them, the gods, like I've read, right? And so the gods are like, yeah, sure, we can do that, basically. And they create this man named Enkidu. This is a primitive man. He is described here that he isn't 
in a society at all. He's by himself, basically out in the wild. And he's like essentially an animal. He's like running around with the animals and like drinking out their watering hole and like acting like them and the animals like him. And he's, you know, naked and all this crazy shit. He's Tarzan. Okay. Yeah, for sure. He's literally George of the jungle. Um, They create him and they put him out in the universe. And so now he's in the wild. A hunter finds him because Enkidu, like, I guess has traveled in his like animal like migration or whatever to this hunter's area where he sets up his traps and Enkidu like starts fucking with his traps so like so that he can't be trapping the animals anymore basically this hunter is like who the who the fuck is like fucking with my trap and so like hangs out to try and see who it is and he sees that it's this wild ass man and he's like Jesus fuck who is this guy and he's scared basically he sees like this man is really strong and really wild and clearly like doesn't live in a society so he basically prays to gods, um, specifically the god Shamash, um, who is a sun god right now. And is like, this dude is swole AF. He's out here like messing up my traps. I can't hunt anymore. So it's like fucking with my trade and with my ability to eat. Um, I need some help. Shamash is like, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Go to Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh will help you um, like figure this out. So the hunter goes to Gilgamesh and tells Gilgamesh this story. And Gilgamesh is like, okay, take Shamat, who is um, a temple of Ishtar, like prostitute, basically, she's a harlot. And it's not like, it's not like a looked down upon thing. It's just like very matter of factly stated, like this is the prostitute. (laughs) And he's like, you know, Shamat, the prostitute for Ishtar, like over at the Ishtar temple. He's like, go tell her, bring her with you. When you, the next time you see her uh, or you see him, she's with you, like have her do like, her crazy prostitute shit with the primitive man and like he'll like get so like crazed up like he's probably never seen a woman before so he'll like start fucking the shit out of her and then like he'll never be the same again after that like he'll help he'll start coming to society like it'll be done everything will be cool wow <laughs> literally just have this whore go out there and fuck this man into sanity mm-hmm. is what <laughs> yes yeah for sure no legit and so the trapper is like that's a great idea thank you king gilgamesh so he goes to shamat and shamat is like absolutely i'm totally down and so she goes with this trapper and they wait and they see enkidu uh out doing his thing at one point and the hunter's like go go now's your chance like go and she goes and she like opens her cloak or whatever (laughs) like literally this is very much a like flasher moment where she's like i'm gonna open my robe i'm gonna look at these titties (laughs) (laughs) she like she like does some belly dance i don't even know but she's like what's up crazy wild man like you ain't never seen these before and enkidu is like i definitely ain't never seen those before and he obviously it's like I want to fuck that um because men I guess and so he does (laughs) oh accurate so he does he's like does exactly what they say he's gonna do and he goes up and fucks the shit out of Shamat for like a week straight they say he's like he cannot get enough of this (laughs) of this pussy for seven days straight this poor prostitute poor shaman man well (laughs) so she was just like i guess she was just happy to do it like she was like no this is cool this is like my job this is what i do (laughs) i like it i guess oh i guess 
but she was like once he was finally done like after a week she was like all right what's up Enkidu you are now a man obviously you now are no longer a wild person you have experienced the sex that means that um you gotta like be a citizen um and he's like okay like sure I guess I'll, I'll be cool with that that's fine and she's like well let's come back to Uruk with me uh and he's like why and she's like well Gilgamesh is there and Gilgamesh is like the sickest dude ever like he's hot he's like Swaleyev he's like the best king and Enkidu is like well he's not as great as me I'll fight him right now basically and she's like no 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 it's not like that you don't need to be fighting him like you don't need to be challenging him like he is you're gonna love him and Enkidu is like what are you talking about and so Shamat says you guys are gonna be like soulmates basically and he's like what are you talking about and she's like How okay she know that's a great question but apparently she knows <laughs> so Shamat is like you're going to be soulmates. So before we even knew you existed, Gilgamesh was having dreams. And she tells Enkidu that Gilgamesh had these series of three dreams about essentially something falling out of the sky, basically. That's essentially what happens for all three of the things in his dreams. And that it falls out of the sky and everyone in his city loves this thing that fell out of the sky. And he comes and they give the thing to him and he loves this thing that fell out of the sky. And there, I cannot stress this enough, there are very relevant quotes in this dream sequence where he's like, in my dream, they gave him to me and I loved this thing like a wife. I loved this thing like a wife. That's the statement that happens, just FYI. He tells his mom, who is a cow goddess, by the way, Ninsun, um, so she is like, yeah, that means that, you know, you're going to meet your soulmate basically soon. And like, this person is going to be like the perfect match for you in every way. And you're going to love each other and it's going to be great. And he's like, okay, that's cool. Like I'm down with that. So Shamat tells Enki to do this. And she's like, so yeah, like, you don't need to be like fighting him and shit. Like, let's just go to this town. Let's just go to the town. Like, forget I even said anything. Let's just go. And Enki do is like, okay, sure. Whatever. And so they go to the city. So this is now tablet two. <laughs> uh, Shamat brings Enkidu back to um, the city. They um, introduce him essentially to more human type of activities. They're like, here's how to like eat dinner, but not like a fucking wild person. Here's clothes. Here is, you know, like here's a shower. Um, you don't have to be a stinky ass motherfucker. And he becomes a human basically. Now, here is where people take the uh, previously mentioned information about like Gilgamesh doing the like king's right on women. This is where that text actually is in the, in the story. After Enkidu has become like a member of the community in this like little portion of Uruk, he learns from somebody like one random night He's like, hey, where are you going? And he's like, oh, I'm going to the wedding festival of so-and-so and lady such-and-such. And he's like, oh, well, he like asks a question basically about like, what does all that entail? And he talks about it and he learns from this dude that Gilgamesh is going to be fucking the new bride because it's the wedding night. So he's going to do that and then he'll bring her back out and then she's going to be ready for her husband or whatever. And Enkidu hears this and is like, this is some fucking bullshit basically. And it's like, hell no. And so he runs to 
this place and he blocks the door to the house where the bride is. So when Gilgamesh gets there to try and fuck her, Enkidu's there and is like, nah, you ain't fucking this bride. This is some bullshit. And so they fight, they, they wrestle um, and it's great. They fight so hard that eventually Gilgamesh just gives up and is like, holy shit, like you're a fucking fighter. It's only, he just stops and it's like, I cannot stress this enough. It is in my personal scholarly opinion, quote me on this, Sam from Real Lit Podcast, the day that whatever day it is right now that we're recording this, it really sounds like Gilgamesh is turned on by how like strong Enkidu is and is like, hot damn, like that was a good fight. You're really strong. I don't want to fight you anymore. I don't even care about the woman that I came here to fuck. Like, do you want to be friends? basically and Enkidu's like yeah I'm held down with that and now they are literally soulmates it's just like all of a sudden now we are in a realm of Enkidu and Gilgamesh are inseparable like they are the loves of each other's lives they are doing everything together all the time basically we get a lot of like missing text and the next thing we know is Gilgamesh has this the same thing that all heroes go through he's like I'm a hero and I'm bored so I'm gonna go and try and kill a random monster that isn't fucking with me because why not everyone and I mean everyone is like this probably not a good idea and he's like I don't give a fuck and so they're like well if you don't give a fuck you're gonna do this anyway then at least take Enkidu with you because like he'll protect you and Gilgamesh is like, yeah, duh, I wasn't going to go without him. And so he tells Enkidu, Enkidu is like, this is not a good idea, dude. Um, like this bro is real fucked up. His name is, um, he's a demigod like Gilgamesh. He's a demigod named Humbaba or Huawa, depending on Sumerian versus Akkadian things. But we're going to go with Humbaba here. This is Humbaba and his face is described as looking like intestines. <laughs> And there are legitimate, like historical contextual markers here that make it very likely that he is supposed to be the equivalent of what a Gorgon is in Greek slash Roman mythology. So Medusa, you know, the Gorgons, that's what Humbaba is basically. He's a Gorgon. He protects the holy pine forest <laughs> or whatever it is some random holy forest, Gilgamesh is like, yeah, I want to kill that dude. I just want to do it. And Enkidu is like, okay, well, I mean, if you're not going to stop, then yeah, I'll come with you. And yeah, let's go fucking kill this guy, basically. Tablet three, the elders of the city are like, okay, well, if this is how you're going to go kill this dude, then here's the, here's the things that you should do when you're going to go out and do it. You should do these rituals every night on your journey, yada, 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 basically. And he visits his mom, the cow goddess Ninsen, and she basically gives him more like advice, basically. Um, he talks to the god, um, the sun god Shamash about what's going on. And there's an interesting part here because Ninsen actually, his mom, goes to Shamash in the tablet and speaks directly to Shamash, the sun god, and says, look what you've done. Why are you now like making my son want to go and do this thing that you want to happen you want Himbaba to be dead I like I don't know if there's any like scholarly stuff out here but to me personally what this reads to 
is essentially like this is almost like Shamash is like looking for repayment for like giving Enkidu to Gilgamesh here because Shamash was the one who it, it's it's difficult but essentially it's like basically okay you have now a great thing so now I want you to do something for me basically and I, that is go kill Humbaba that's kind of what I see in this situation but I could be wrong I'm not a Sumerian fucking literaturist after all this, the end of this tablet, Ninsen adopts Enkidu as her son, like formally. And there's like this whole, like basically like vow, it's it's peak married shit. Like there's like vow exchange type of things going on. And Ninsen is like, and you are now the same type of uh, relationship to me as Gilgamesh, my own son is. You are, you guys are one and the same. They, they get like I'm telling you they get married basically is what happens here <laughs> yeah Gilgamesh and Enkidu basically gather up their shit and they leave instructions for how Uruk should be run while Gilgamesh is gone and then they fucking leave and peace out to go on this journey to the forest so tablet four they go on this journey and it's all about them going to the forest there's just a lot of bullshit that you really don't need to know about like yeah like the hobbit walk 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 yeah. legitimately yeah. It, it's all of that it's they walk every night they do the ritual and then he Gilgamesh keeps having really badass dreams like obviously they're dreams that are foreboding like oh I'm about to go try and kill like a huge ass monster so he's like dreaming about all of the awful ways that trying to kill a huge ass monster could go wrong <laughs> basically yeah and, and Enkidu is like when he wakes up Enkidu is like you basically every time like don't worry this this is fine like it doesn't mean that you're gonna fail you know like we'll be cool in fact it probably means that we'll we're gonna be like hella prepared and we're gonna like kick his ass basically is everything every they are they are literally relationship goals yeah that's the, the i mean like that's the whole tablet four that's all that is like that's all i need to cover for tablet four <laughs> so tablet five they finally reach the forest they reach the forest humbaba's here and as they're entering, um, Humbaba like has this weird, there's this, this almost like the way that the words in the fragments make it out is almost like as they're journeying through the forest, now that they've gotten to it, there's almost a weird, like, um, like a temptation sort of aspect. Like he's maybe like non, what is that word? The word that I'm trying to find right now is on the tip of my tongue and I can't say it disembodied that's the word that I was looking for like he has like weird like disembodied like whisperings in and out of like Gilgamesh's and Enkidu's like ears of like oh your bro is gonna fuck up really hard like you better run now because and just save yourself and or or like oh just FYI you're a fucking piece of shit Gilgamesh I will fucking literally murder your husband right in front of your face and like eat him so like I will Jesus. torture your ass by like hurting the shit out of you. So you have to watch the love of your life die. So if you don't want to do that, maybe you should just fucking walk out of my forest. Basically is like some crazy shit that happens. And Gilgamesh and Enki do like the whole time basically talk to each other about what's going on. And they're, they have to each kind of over and over again, be like, fuck him. Stop listening to what he's saying. I don't know what the fuck's going on, but like, we just have to keep going. We just have to keep killing it. We just have to keep going and killing his ass. So they do, they finally like get there and they start fighting and uh, Gilgamesh like calls Shamash for help and Shamash is like, here's the 13 winds and the 13 winds bind Humbaba. And so now Humbaba is captured 
and now Humbaba's like tone is changing and he's like uh I didn't really mean all that shit that I said earlier basically no I was just kidding I'm sorry I'm sorry I didn't know you I I didn't know you were gonna bring all that heat I'm sorry essentially essentially and it's like listen I can I can like we can make this work <laughs> basically is Mbaba here like like do you want to rule the kingdom love the forest like my forest is a badass place like you can have it have the forest <laughs> like just don't yeah, kill just me don't <laughs> kill me like you have whatever you want just don't kill me he's this man is pleading for his life for sure is essentially like I will be your slave like I will serve you I will no longer be the king of the forest you will be the king of the forest I will be doing your fucking bidding like everything is cool and Enkidu is like bro stop listening to this dumbass and just kill him basically and so Humbaba is like man this is some bullshit fuck both of you and curses them <laughs> essentially and uh Gilgamesh and Enkidu are like yeah that that checks out and then kills him and he does and that's the end of Mbaba and then they go and like they kill his like uh offspring he has like seven sons and so they're like now we have to go kill these guys because now they're trying to kill us because we killed their dad basically so after they do that they're like that's finally done now how the fuck we're gonna get back so they cut down all of the like trees in the forest basically and they make this huge gigantic like uh, raft and then they cut down more of the trees because they're like let's take all of these trees home with us and we can like make cool shit at home basically like temples and like like buildings and strange shit so they like gather all the like DIY like <laughs> um, uh, materials and they like get on their big ass raft and they sail down the river back to Uruk with the head of Humbaba and all of their trees and they come back to Uruk and are like we killed him yay and everyone's like fucking cool and then they like build a bunch of shit from the the forest trees that they took two dudes (laughs) cut down a whole forest that is a question that's a great question like okay this is believable if you assume that the king Gilgamesh also brought an army with him like soldiers behind him to go on this mission and it wasn't just him and Enkidu like going to fuck up this Gorgon okay if there was a military force behind him I could see them wrecking this forest and bringing it back to build shit but I cannot see like two demigod dudes in the forest just like cutting down hella trees and transporting them hella far by themselves in a raft that they also built from trees that they cut down like this would take years yes no you're definitely not wrong like that is for sure um the two things that scholars say to this are a potentially exactly what you just said so there are different versions of this part of the story like in the different like tablets um from the different areas that i was mentioning uh of like different retellings uh, of portions of the epic and in some of them there is one of the deviations of the standard Babylonian version that we're reading now. One of the deviations is that they don't go alone to Humbaba. They actually do bring other men with them, which is interpreted as they bring an army, basically. Makes sense. That is one of the things that potentially answers this question. And then the other thing that people, that scholars say is if it wasn't that, um, or 
And if this was like a deliberate choice to exclude those people in this, then potentially the thing that we don't have that would make sense here is the fragments make it really difficult to tell how long it's been like how long this entire journey and this entire fight and how long it takes them to like gather all of this stuff and then sail back. The time frame aspect of it is entirely missing. We don't know how long this takes. So people say like what we could be missing, which would have potentially been informed from the stuff from the missing parts of the fragments that are missing is potentially the story could have been like, and so they took five years to cut down every tree in this forest and they hung out in those five years and were just like crafting their raft and like <laughs> bringing shit back home with them this whole time. I so mean, like I guess, but that seems implausible <laughs> because, okay, if you are aware of literally anything from ancient times, you know that fucking the lifespan of a person was what, like 35, 40 years old? Right. So, if Gilgamesh was already a king at this point, he was at least 15 or something uh, when he started fucking all the people in his kingdom. This is not, <laughs> yeah. not even the time that it took for Enkidu to come down from the gods and become a man and do all these things. So let's assume he's at this point when they are alive, they are 20, question mark, at least right. Because some time has had to have passed in this time. So they're 20. They're traveling from wherever the fuck they live into the next kingdom where uh, this Gorgon lives and rules. And they're going into a kingdom ruled by this guy. So he clearly has a military like ready to go because he's a king. Like you would have some shit to protect you. So the travel time to get from one kingdom to the other is likely pretty long because I'm going to assume based on their names and the time frame that they are probably in the Middle East. <laughs> yes, they're in they're in around like essentially um, like Samaria and um, they're in Ur, which is a real historical place. That's what yeah. Uruk is. Yeah. Um, so they're they're traveling around like Anatolia and like yes. um, places like just a bunch of places in the middle east but yeah like that little area so the time to get from that area to a place where there is surrounded by trees where the gorgon would possibly be the king of would take mm -hmm. a considerable amount of time because presumably they're walking or they have camels or horses or something like that but it would still take a long ass fucking time like probably over a month yes. to get to where they're going the idea that these two men would stay in the forest for five years while their kingdom just sits there without a king on the throne is absurd. Like I could believe, I could believe that they defeated the Gorgon. They went back to their place and were like, Hey, I defeated the Gorgon. All right, army, go get all the wood, go chop yeah, down all those yeah, trees. Yeah, yeah. Like they sent someone later to go do it. I can't believe for sure. That they would live, that they just the two of them yeah. would stay there and do that because that's just okay. like that's nonsensical. What you outlined is pretty much what scholars essentially think is probably if this is a real historical or references some sort of historical thing that did occur, then that is probably the historically accurate version of how this happened, and that this is just the very 
obviously heroicized, uh, you know, fictionalized epic version of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, just two men all by themselves fucking chop down this entire fucking forest and drag it back in like a day or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, uh, historians and, and uh, scholars and stuff about it pretty much essentially are at the same conclusion that you've made here that like if this was a real historical happening that's probably more how it accurately happened that yeah, they went yeah. if they went by themselves if they went by themselves and they did it and then they came back and then they sent their army to go do all that shit or they never went by themselves and they went with an army to begin with that's the end of Humbaba he's dead they come back to the kingdom and everything's peachy after this in my opinion, if this is supposed to be, again, like chronologically, I would assume that this is now happening because of because of Humbaba. So how I read this is Ishtar is a goddess. She's a goddess of like love and war and something. Maybe not war, but definitely love. Love and something else, I forget. Um, I could have written it down because like that's what I do. It's my entire job here, but I was apparently too fucking lazy to do it right here. I got you. So, <laughs> uh she's loving something but she's from what i understand the humbaba thing just really impresses the shit out of everyone obviously and i think ishtar is part of this camp where she's hella impressed she's like oh shit you kill humbaba that was dope and she's now like super like into gilgamesh so you were right she's the okay. goddess of war okay and sexual love <laughs> I was legit right I, wow that so rarely happens that I was actually 100% right as opposed to just like potentially or like um halfway right that's nice so uh she I guess is just into him now basically from what I can understand or from it would make sense to me that she was like oh shit you just killed the fuck out of Humbaba that was hot and now she like wants Gilgamesh and is like, I would love to fuck you. I would give you like the best life ever. I'm a goddess, obviously. You know all the stories of all the people that I've loved before. Like you will be, you know, rich and you will be amazing and you'll always have my protection for war and all of that stuff. And like your life will be great. Like we should definitely just fuck basically <laughs> um, because I want to and I'm a goddess. So like do what I fucking say. And Gilgamesh rejects her and is like i'm absolutely the fuck not fucking you <laughs> i don't want to you treat your lovers like shit i have no interest in fucking you and so people point to this as the only reason that he rejects ishtar but to be completely honest here he rejects her outright in the text and then ishtar keeps trying to argue with him and so he doesn't bring up the treatment of her other lovers until later on in their argument maybe like just fucking spitballing here maybe one of the other reasons that gilgamesh has no interest in fucking ishtar is because he like has a husband now god damn he and enkidu are together like i don't know how people can read it now and like not know he start, he meets enkidu and he no longer has any interest in fucking anyone else anymore it cannot be obvious more obvious at this point it, the literal goddess of sex and war the two things that this dude lives for is like be my bitch i will set you up for life and gilgamesh is like nah i'm cool because he has enkidu there's it's so obvious it's 
ridiculous that people <laughs> leave this out as one of the obvious reasons, in my opinion, that Gilgamesh just has no interest in fucking Ishtar. So he basically is like, you treat your lovers like shit. I don't want to fuck you whatsoever and never have and never asked for this. So like, please just stop propositioning me basically. <laughs> yeah. And she pissed off. And so she goes to her dad, Anu, and it's like, Gilgamesh rejected me. I'm pissed off. I want to go fucking murder the shit out of him. And I want to send down the bull of heaven to avenge him insulting me and rejecting me. And I'm going to fuck up his kingdom and kill him with the bull of heaven. And Anu is like, this is very extra. My daughter <laughs> basically is his answer. Like, I don't think this is like a reasonable response to this situation. Like, First of all, he's not that wrong. Like you do treat your lovers like shit. <laughs> but second of all, he's like, listen, if I give you the bull of heaven, a bunch of bad shit is going to happen to Uruk, like the entire city. They're going to have seven years of famine. They're going to meteorological disasters, basically, or meteorological, like geographical disasters and like climate disasters, essentially from how he describes it. He's like, the bull of heaven is going to fuck their shit up if I give him to you. Like this is a super overreaction all of this st stuff is not worth you getting avenged for one random dude rejecting your ass basically yeah and so she is like okay and she goes and she actually helps the people of Uruk make and makes sure that they have provisions um and preparations for the seven years of famine and like shit that they're going to deal with and she goes, okay, I made sure that they have all of the recourse available to them so that they would be able to reasonably survive um, the bull of heaven's reign. Can I have him now? And Anu was like, I mean, this wasn't exactly what I meant when I was talking to you about all this, but like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and he gives her the bull of heaven and she's like, great. And releases the bull of heaven on Uruk it causes, obviously, as was already covered, just a whole bunch of crazy shit to happen. The Euphrates basically dries up. <laughs> Essentially, earthquakes are obviously happening because huge, like, cracks and, like, schisms in the earth are opening up and, like, devour, like, they're, they're cracking open and people are falling into them, basically. That's fucked up. This is happening, and Enkidu and Gilgamesh are like, God damn. Basically, Enkidu is like, You said no to Ishtar, didn't you? And Gilgamesh is like, I mean, what else was I going to say? And Enkidu is like, Well, now we got to go fucking kill the bull of heaven. <laughs> and Gilgamesh is like, I mean, I'm down. <laughs> like, let's just go do that. And so he and Enkidu go and kill the bull of heaven. Essentially, they kill the bull of heaven, and they're like, great and they like are cutting it up to like basically make it um you know um a sacrificial like burnt offering to shamash you know their favorite gods or whatever ishtar is pissed the fuck off obviously because she what she wanted was for Gilgamesh to pay and this is not what happened now she doesn't have her pet bull from heaven <laughs> anymore because it's dead so ishtar comes out and is like how dare you you've murdered the bull of heaven you guys are pieces of shit basically and enkidu king shit like king shit he slaps her in the face with the like leg basically he takes a drumstick and slaps this goddess in the face with it damn <laughs> is what happens he said bitch 
test me. It's the funniest thing I've ever read. I've read that part in this epic over and over and over again because it's so specific. It is not just like, oh, he like assaulted her with it or like, oh, he threw it at her. It is very clearly like he picks it up and he slaps her in the face with it. (laughs) God damn. It's so funny. Sorry. It's amazing. It's just everything about life that I love. And it's essentially like, bitch, you were the one who decided to put the bowl of heaven down here. You're the reason that your dumb pet's dead, not us. Everyone is like, yay, now the bowl of heaven is dead. So now Gilgamesh and Enkidu saved them from Humbaba. And they've also saved them from the bowl of heaven who was wrecking their shit up now. While the city of Uruk is celebrating, Enkidu goes to sleep and he has a dream. And this is where shit's about to like turn. Enkidu is going to sleep and he's having a dream where the gods are talking about what has happened now that the bull of heaven is dead. And they're essentially like Gilgamesh and Enkidu are a problem. They've killed Humbaba. They've now killed bull of heaven. Like Humbaba was one thing, but now probably something needs to happen. There needs to be repayment basically for the bull of heaven dying. One of them has to die. Everyone is essentially like, well, Gilgamesh isn't going to die because he's the king. Like he has to like be a king. Obviously, the person that's going to die here is Enkidu. And Shamash is very against this. Shamash has basically been like their boy <laughs> this whole time um, as far as gods go. And is like, this is some bullshit. You guys shouldn't be doing this. They're doing shit for their people. Like they didn't even ask to do the bull of heaven thing. Ishtar is the fucking reason that the bull of heaven is dead because she's the one fucking sent it down. Like they didn't ask for that. But he just basically gets overruled essentially and they're like all right well unfortunately we're gonna kill Enkidu. Enkidu wakes up is very upset about this obviously (laughs) and he like walks around and is just like pissed off and he's like cursing everyone left and right he is basically like man fuck all this shit like if I had just stayed a wild man and a goddamn wild then none of this shit would have happened. I wish I had just stayed you know George of the Jungle basically and he's like cursing Shema and like, I wish you had never come to like fuck me and had like made me civilized and all this shit. And so Shamash comes down from heaven and is like, Enkidu, like, stop, stop being dumb. Like, stop, you're being an asshole. Like, it's not Shamat's like fault here. Like, Shamat didn't, you hella great. Like, she gave you a bunch of happy memories. You love her. Like, and also she gave you Gilgamesh, who is literally your husband. She and Shamash basically tells him that, listen, when you die, Gilgamesh is going to make sure that everyone in the, this entire place never forgets you ever. He is going to like basically give a huge funeral. Your place is going to be super revered and honored. He's going to like, I mean, it's going to be lavished with like, you know, uh, like funerary gifts and all that stuff. Afterwards, he's going to literally be like broken. Like he's going to be a shell of a man essentially because, because of you, him losing you. That is honorable. That is, that means that your life meant something basically. And Enkidu is like, you right. Sorry. Uh, I take my curses back <laughs> basically. So it's not clear here. It's just like, oh, he's marked for death. So now he's dying. So what this says, at least to me, because it's just not clear in the text what's going on from the evidence of the text, what it just sounds like is the minute he has this dream and they decide he's going to die, 
he falls ill, I would say probably somehow. This is an illness somehow that starts happening because what it says is he essentially languishes and wastes away for like 12 days. Gilgamesh is essentially like refusing to believe that this is going to happen. It's like, no, you're going to get better. You just have to get better. Basically like you're sick now, but you'll, you know, you pull through it. And he keeps waiting and 12 days go by and Enkidu just wasting away basically. And on the 12th day, um, he basically dies. It is really like the worst thing, obviously that's ever happened to Gilgamesh. And he actually like clings to Enkidu's body um, and like sobs and like mourns and refuses to let them bury him. Um, because he refuses to like believe that Enkidu is really dead. He does this for so long. It's only when a maggot drops out of Enkidu's corpse's nose that he finally allows for Enkidu to be buried and like accepts that he's truly dead. This is, it's like an infamous line, essentially like he denies that he's dead until a worm drops from his nose. Super fucking tragic. But it's definitely not homosexual. Am I right, guys? Fellas, fellas, is it gay to like keep your husband's corpse until he's rotting on the inside and a maggot falls out of his nose? Is it? Huh? Huh? Am I right? Like, Jesus Christ. God, fuck toxic masculinity. Anyway, tablet eight. <laughs> Enkidu is now dead and Gilgamesh has finally accepted it. He laments Enkidu dying and like it's this huge, basically poetic speech about like how the whole world is mourning for this man's death. Like the mountains, the mountains mourn him, the forest mourns him, the rivers mourn him, the animals mourn him, all of this stuff. In his speech, he talks about their adventures together um, and he sobs basically, and he rips out his own hair and he like rips off his own clothes, his clothes and essentially um, because he's so upset, has a bunch of, funerary stuff made for his burial he basically provides the the money essentially to have a statue made for him and all of these gifts um to go in his funerary treasury basically all of this is essentially funerary rites that are very typical of the historical time period this would have been very normal it's the excess like the amount that of that you could do for a loved one that was what would differ in terms of funerary rites. Everyone would be trying to do this as much as possible and doing it to the extent of the resources that they had. It just so happens that Gilgamesh is the fucking king. So he like is buying a shit ton of everything to send Enkidu off to have what is considered a favorable reception in the realm of the dead, in the, in the underworld. They have a huge banquet and they you know eat drink and be merry basically it's like the light it's like the celebration of life before you essentially send you know the body off into the burial into the place of rest with the treasures and the offerings to the gods and that is the end of that tablet now we're in tablet nine Enkidu is dead his funeral's done Gilgamesh just doesn't like have any purpose in life anymore basically he just abandons being king basically like he just starts roaming the wild countryside. He is, he doesn't wear real clothes. He kills wild animals and just wears their skins. 
keep his body safe, but otherwise he doesn't give a shit about himself. He's just wandering around the wild, the wild, like grieving. And he's having this huge existential crisis, of course, because when you lose someone, unfortunately, Katie and I, um, for people listening, unfortunately know this too well. We have recently had some uh, grieving processes in our own particular family. So this is a very, <laughs> this is a very near and dear topic to our hearts. We totally understand um, this uh, type of feeling that people have uh, when you have a loved one of any variety that you're close to that dies. Like it's a huge complex thing of emotions. Like you are upset they're gone, but you're also glad they're gone because they're not suffering anymore. And now you're also thinking about your own mortality and like the fact that you're going to die someday. And so now you're thinking about how afraid you are and how glad that you're not dead. And then you're dealing with the guilt of that happiness because you're like, how fucking fucked up am I that I'm happy that I'm alive rather than, and you know, my loved one is dead. And like all of that, like all of that is very common, very normal responses to grief, you know, doesn't mean you're an evil person or anything or an awful person. It's just how it works. Um, And Gilgamesh is no different. So he's going through the very typical grieving emotions of he is now basically like terrified because he realizes he's going to die now someday too. He is kind of like, I don't know what happens when you die. Like basically, am I going to see Enkidu again when I die? Or are we going to go to different places? You know, because they do essentially believe in different places in the afterlife in this time frame for um, Mesopotamia and uh, their sort of like beliefs about the afterlife. There are different places that you go when you die, depending on like what kind of person you are. I don't know what happens when I die. What we believe is this, but I don't really know that for sure. I don't want to die. If I die, am I going to see my husband again? Basically, you know, like all of these questions. So he decides he wants to try and find a man named Utnapishtim. This translates essentially um, to the faraway man or the man, the one who went the farthest, um, Utnapishtim. I'm going to just leave his name as that at that. And I'm going to, this is an experiment readers. So you can list listening to this. You can time it with me. I want to see how long it takes Katie to pick up who the fuck this person is because <laughs> You know who this person is. You just don't know him by this name yet. His name is Utnapishtim in this story. This man in the Epic of Gilgamesh, from what they know of their culture, Utnapishtim has the secret of eternal life because the story that is associated with Utnapishtim is that he was among the select tiny few survivors of a great flood that happened in the area and he and his wife after that flood they were granted immortality by the gods so Gilgamesh basically goes on this journey to try and find Utnapishtim and he crosses long ass he does a whole long ass journey very hero journey it's the same no matter what hero you're talking about no one needs to rehash it again so finds himself finally at Mount Mashu, which is the quote-unquote end of the earth. (laughs) Uh, It's probably not that. It's probably just like the end of the like Middle Eastern area that they're at. 
Mesopotamia. It's the end of Mesopotamia. So he comes to the end of this earth and there's this tunnel at the base of Mount Mashu that no one has ever entered and it is guarded by two scorpion men. Well, not scorpion men, two scorpion people, I should say, because it, from what it looks like in the text, they're like married. This is like a married couple just like guarding the gates of this tunnel, but they're scorpion people. And this is just dropped like it is very normal <laughs> like and then he came to some two scorpion people and the scorpion people were like what the fuck are you doing here and he's like i'm gonna go through there and the husband is like you shouldn't want to do this dude like nobody usually survives like it's not a fun place but the wife is like bitch don't fucking like backseat drive for this guy like he can do what he wants he can make his own decisions like let him go through if he wants to go through look he's like obviously upset basically he's going through some shit like just let him go through the husband is like all right whatever you want to do so they let him through (laughs) basically he goes through this long tunnel it takes a long ass time before he finally through this tunnel comes back out and when he comes out he is in what is called the garden of the gods and it is a huge paradise like place that is uh you know obviously full of fruit and flowers and happiness and sunshine and great things he's like all right now i'm still on my quest to try and find um so he goes until he gets to a essentially like large body of water there is an alewife that lives here named siduri siduri is like who the fuck is you basically like not a lot of people come here <laughs> we don't get a lot of visitors basically in this place and he is like well I'm here because like, I'm looking for Utnapishtim and uh, I'm looking for him because I lost the love of my life and I want to know what the uh, secret to eternal life is. And she is basically like, I don't think that's a good idea, dude. You should just like live your life. And he's like, I did not ask for advice. I just want to know how to get to him basically. (laughs) And she's like, okay, well, the dude over there, Urshanabi, he's the ferryman he is the one that crosses and takes people to and from the the island where Utnapishtim goes or where he lives so if you're gonna get to him you have to go with Urshanabi so he's over there go talk to him basically and Gilgamesh is like all right cool and then he goes and this is very reminiscent of like at this point this is a very much King Arthur moment where like you remember so as the knights are wandering around, when you meet another knight or another person in like the wild, basically, you don't talk to them. You just fight. Just like on principle, you just start fighting to the death for some strange reason. Because men, that's why. And, <laughs> and so this is not this is not something if women were knights, <laughs> this isn't how things would progress. Right, right. That wouldn't be like, oh shit, I see someone from another city in the wild. Let's fucking fight. That's not my first thought. And that wouldn't be a woman's first thought. It's because men. Sorry, men. Sorry to all the men listening. I'm sure you're not that kind of guy. Whatever. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Historically speaking. Damn. Men are garbage. That was the clay tablet that you dug up in... uh, I don't know, like 5,000 AD, <laughs> they've dug up the clay tablet and all it says is Katie, real lit. Uh, 
I'm sure you're not that kind of guy. Deal with it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not all men, bitch, except yes, all men. Yeah. Um, in this so, case, in the olden times, right. it was like in the ancient it's times. It's not even covered why. It's just like, and he knows, like, this is the fucking thing. They just had a, he just had a conversation with this fucking alewife. So Duri was like, his name is Urshanabi. This is what he does. You need him because he's going to take you across the sea to go to the person that you like. You know everything you need to know to not need to fight this guy whatsoever. Yeah. There's no need. You don't want to. Actually, it goes against the thing that you're actually trying to accomplish. He knows all this. He just had the conversation. But then he comes and he's like, fight <laughs> to the death. It makes no sense. So he and Urshanabi fight in their fight like they obviously don't they don't kill each other thank god finally but in this huge ass fight gilgamesh has ruined what they call even what we're talking about today in terms of the translation of the tablets we don't even know what the fuck they're referring to in the text here the closest thing we can translate to what they're saying here is things of stone things of stone <laughs> just fyi of these things of stone we know they're obviously made of stone and we know that they there's some sort of um like weaving involved in them there's some sort of like thread thing going on inside of them or around them or a part of them or whatever it is but that's all we know and gilgamesh in his fight to the death that did not need to happen with Urshanabi, breaks these things of stone and when they stop fighting, he has the same conversation with Urshanabi that he literally just had with Siduri. And Urshanabi is like, why didn't you just fucking say so in the first place, you goddamn idiot? And Gilgamesh is like, why? And he's like, I absolutely could have done this exact fucking thing for you, except you just broke the goddamn thing that I use to get across the sea, to go take you to Nehishtim. <laughs> the things of stone are the reason that I can take people there and back and I can go there myself and back and not die. Those are the reasons why. And you just broke them. <laughs> and Gilgamesh was like, oops, basically. And so Urshanabi is like, bitch, go out and get like a gajillion trees and bring them back and I'm gonna tell you what to do with them and we're gonna make some shit and we're gonna see if I can basically DIY, you know, uh, fucking MacGyver this shit out. <laughs> and we'll see, we'll see what I can do at this point. And so go testosterone like levels <laughs> in ancient Mesopotamia were just off the charts. Like this story <laughs> literally started with Gilgamesh fucking everything that moved in his village and it yes. it is currently him trying to kill this dude and just and for no goddamn reason the reason is the he already knows who he is he already has been told is the only way you're gonna get to your end goal and he still fucking fights the guy it just doesn't make any sense it's like but it's like so the testosterone with being a man coupled with the arrogance of being a demigod is just like has super fucked Gilgamesh like he just like he's all over there the is, fucking place 
the grief has legitimately like addled his brain at this point who knows he's got sun sickness he's been wandering around in the sun for forever in animal skins or whatnot like the boy is very obviously cognitively impaired in some oh yeah not to mention being sick from eating wild animals who knows if he's cooking them properly or whatever like Basically, Gilgamesh was like, my bad. Yes, I will do what you say, basically, and goes and gets all the 80 gajillion trees that Urshanavi tells him to. And they make something, basically, they're fashioning them into like punting poles. So um, these are essentially like, if you've never had to deal with this type of thing, like recreationally, I don't know what it's called. But essentially, you know, when you like stick poles in the river and they hit the ground and you're like pushing yourself along with the poles in the river? Does that make sense? Yes. So they're essentially that. They're making a whole bunch of those things, basically. And Urshanabi is like, this is the only thing I can think of that may, may, keyword here, help us not die in place of the stone things that you fucking broke, Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh is like, all right. And he's like, so knowing the risks, you still want me to ferry you over this fucking sea? to go and maybe live and see Napishtim and Gilgamesh is like, yes. And Urshanabi is like, all right, let's fucking go. So they go, it's a treacherous thing. They have to use all their goddamn fucking punting poles, um, but they eventually make it through. They reach the island where Napishtim lives. When he meets Napishtim, Gilgamesh tells him the story that we basically all know now Utnapishtim basically looks at him and is like, you're a damn fool, basically. Like, this is this is a fool's errand. Your humans are not ever going to find out the secret to life. Like, that's just never going to happen. The way, and, and Gilgamesh is like, that's not true. You found, fucking found it. And he's like, I didn't fucking find it. I wasn't fucking even looking for it in the first place. This is what happened. Gilgamesh is essentially like, okay, well, Gilgamesh is like, okay, well, whether or not you were looking for it, you obviously found it. Like, you're hella fucking old from what I know of your story, but you look as young as the day you were born. I don't know. You fucking look younger than you should be, basically. Like, how? How did that happen? And then Apishtim is like, you know what? I'm going to tell you just so that you can understand why you fucking wasted your time coming here, (laughs) basically. (laughs) And he goes, okay, this is what happened. There was a great flood that was fucking coming. The only reason I survived it is because Enki one of the gods, came to me and was like, bro, my brother is a little fucking crazy right now. He's planning on sending a huge ass flood to try and kill everybody here. You got to build a boat, gather some shit and like your family and save yourselves basically. And Utnapishtim was like, well, what do I tell all of the people that helped me make this boat? And he's like, just tell them, you just lie. Just be like, oh, oh, we're going to like, gonna be great like i'm gonna pay you and this and this and that and like all of this stuff like just lie to them just, like i and and the picture was basically like that doesn't feel ethical and enki is like you can pick ethics or you can pick death <laughs> and or essentially like you can pick ethics and death or you can pick life basically at this point he's like my brother's gonna be sending a fucking flood everything's gonna die unless you do what i tell you basically and so he's like okay so he builds this huge ass waterproof essentially the way that Enki tells him specifically how to do it he makes the big boat um and he brings his family 
and he brings all the animals, quote unquote, all the animals of the field, all the living creatures that are known to him in the area, basically, and get them all on the boat, get a bunch of provisions, get in the boat. The minute he does this, huge ass storm brings the great flood. It is so bad that even the gods in heaven are like fucked up by it. They're like, what the fuck is happening? I don't like this. I don't like anything that's going on. Ishtar is here at this in this story and is like, Ishtar is like, did do I did I forget that I like got pissed at these people or something and I like asked for them to be dead? Like, what is happening? <laughs> Basically, and everyone, all the gods that are not Enlil, who is the one doing this right now, spoiler alert, everyone is like, fuck, what is going on? The storm lasts. According to what we can understand from Nepishtim here, six days and six nights in which, after which all the human beings turn to clay and Nepishtim is just devastated. There's just water for as far as the eye can fucking see. He doesn't know what the hell is going to happen now. Eventually they act, he gets stuck. Like he's still up in the water. There's still not enough land at all. There's not enough land really at all, but underneath the water he, he, his boat gets stuck on a mountain. <laughs> basically, he hits a mountain. It's an iceberg straight ahead shit, basically. And he gets stuck on it. And he's like, well, fuck. Now I got to try and figure out if there's any land around here. And like, if I'm about to die because I just got stuck on this fucking mountain or if like things are actually lowering. And so like, I can rest easy. So he sends out his birds or whatever. He sends out like a dove and, um, like a swallow and a raven trying to like see if they you know come back and bring any signs of life and whatnot finally eventually the last one that he sends out is the raven and the raven is the one that doesn't ever come back and so he's like okay i think that means that it's probably safe now to like be able to let my people out and that like there is land around here so he uh opens the ark he frees everyone in his family the flood is going down now so utnapeshtim offers up a sacrifice basically to the gods and the gods come down to him and are like this is great this is awesome Utnapishtim is a great guy basically and Enlil arrives Enlil was the one who just sent this great ass flood and Enlil is like what the fuck how did these motherfuckers survive I wanted everyone to die here and all the other gods are like bro what the fuck who said that you could do this? Why? Why? Basically, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why did you do this? Uh, and Enlil was like, fuck you. Like, I was doing it because be just, none of your business was why I was doing it. I'm a fucking god. And Enki and all the other gods are basically like, no, I don't give a shit what you're pissed off about the people about. Like, this was just a big overreaction to whatever the fuck it is that you were mad about. Essentially, they all browbeat Enlil, and Enlil's like, okay, you're fucking right. Like, I overreacted, basically. So, Utnapishtim and his wife, like I said, are, like, sacrificing to the gods or whatever, to, which has brought the gods down. So, Enlil comes to Utnapishtim at a sacrifice and is like, I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't have fucking done that. So, he bestows on Utnapishtim and his wife eternal life. Utnapishtim then is like, that's my fucking story. So I didn't find the secret to eternal life. They just gave it to me because I just so happened to listen to the fucking God when he came and told me that I should like, you know, plan for the apocalypse, basically. Yeah. 
Gilgamesh is like, well, I still want to know what it is. I still want, like, maybe I can prove myself worthy to be bestowed the same gift. And Utnapishtim is like, not going to happen, bro. Gilgamesh is like, fuck you. I want to try. And Utnapishtim is like, okay, if you want to try, here's your first challenge. You have to stay awake for six days and seven nights. And Gilgamesh is like, fucking done. I'll do it right now. And he sits down. And the minute he sits down, he falls the fuck asleep. <laughs> and Utnapishtim is like, basically turns his life and is like, look at this fucking piece of shit. <laughs> he can't even stay awake for one whole day this guy <laughs> and so he's like bake him some bake him some daily provisions i want you to bake him some provisions every day that he's asleep so when he wakes up he cannot deny that he's been asleep this whole last time and she's like all right so every day because gilgamesh sleeps for days and at this point i'm thinking to myself like this makes sense just fyi gilgamesh has been through some shit he went on this long ass journey who knows how fucking sleep deprived deprived this kid is? This yeah. is kind of like a rude thing to try and ask him as his first challenge to like prove himself to be worthy of eternal life. Yeah. The dude probably needed to fucking sleep. But yeah. <laughs> he falls asleep essentially for like six days or something. And every day, Utnapishtim's wife has baked his daily provisions and has left it next to him. So when he finally wakes up, he is like, I didn't fucking fall asleep. What? What? You fell asleep, not me. And Utnapishtim is like, look at your fucking ra- your daily rations. My wife has baked you your daily rations every goddamn day that you've been asleep. Look at them, you failure of a man, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and Gilgamesh looks at them and is like, God damn it, you're right. I was asleep this whole time. Utnapishtim is like, bro i'm not joking this was just not a worthy endeavor like you just have to accept death like death is just a part of life basically like you're not gonna find the secret to immortality gilgamesh accepts this basically he's like i mean he's not happy about it but he's like well i guess i'm just gonna fucking go back so so utnapishtim is gets urshanabi back and Ursh and he instructs urshanabi like you know spiff Gilgamesh up like give him some fucking spa treatment basically this poor kid needs <laughs> needs some like t- TLC basically and as they are going to fix Gilgamesh all up and he's like all right I feel refreshed I'm ready to go back home now right as they're about to go Utnapishtim's wife is like he came all this way babe he's a good kid obviously just because like you know he's dumb doesn't doesn't mean he's not a good kid you should give him something and Nepishtim is like yeah okay that's fine I guess I'll try and like give him something so he goes to Gilgamesh he's like launching basically to like start going off into the um sea and Nepishtim is like hey you're leaving me right now a little ways out at the bottom of the sea there is this little plant it's like got thorns and shit on it. It's like a box thorn plant. Go down to the bottom of that sea if you can. Get that plant and bring it up. It'll make you young again. It won't give you eternal life, but it will make you hella young. It'll take years off your life, basically. And Gilgamesh is like, bro, what the fuck? Are you kidding? Hell yeah, I'll be doing that. So Gilgamesh, as they're out there in the sea, ties stones on his feet and jumps into the ocean so that they drag him down to the bottom so he can walk down on the bottom of the ocean. He finds the plant, he cuts it, 
to bring it back. And then he cuts the stones off of his feet and he swims back up. And he's like, I got the thing. He is like, however, I'm not going to drink it myself. I'm not going to eat this plant or, you know, do whatever it is that Anapishtim told me to do with it. I'm not going to do this for myself right now. I'm going to take it back to Uruk. Have it, like, based on what we can piece together from the um, fragments, he is likely is talking about wanting to almost test it, bring it to an old man in the kingdom and give it to him and see what happens. So if it helps the old man and actually makes him young again, then basically Gilgamesh is like, okay, I have the rest of this plant that I can give to like as many people as I want, basically, including myself. And, and then if it's not, then I just, you know, brought home a fucking dumb plant, but like, whatever. I say, I want to emphasize this because like, goddamn, like you don't get a lot of highlights about like why Gilgamesh is such a great king until, in my opinion, right here. Because rather than very selfishly eat the shit out of this plant, the minute he comes up out of the fucking water, he is like, you know what? No, I'm going to bring it back to my people and see if I can elongate its efficacy to benefit not just me, but as many people as I can. Because he decides to do this, he essentially, he stops to like bathe. So they like, they get back across the ocean. He stops to bathe. His, the plant is like off on its own in their like supplies and a snake comes along, takes the plant and eats it and like sheds its skin because of it and like scurries away. He comes back to his provisions after he's like gone off to bathe and sees that his immortality plant basically that he cannot go back and get another one of is now gone. And so he has completely lost all of his chances at immortality for himself or bringing it back to his people. And he's just really fucking upset. It really was just a fucking uh, futile quest that I just went on. But he returns to Uruk anyway, and his people are happy to see him. That's the fucking end of Tablet 11. Now we're going to go to the last tablet of the epic. But I'm going to state it right now. That's essentially the end of what the real story is of the Epic of Gilgamesh here. In terms of chronology, that's the end. He went off to go get the secret of immortal life because of the fact that he actually wanted to bring it back to his people and not just be selfish and eat it for himself right on the spot. It gets stolen from him. Then we get Tablet 12. <laughs> tablet 12 is essentially titled the translations of what we can understand it from Akkadian slash Sumerian are Gilgamesh and the Netherworld or Gilgamesh Enkidu and the Netherworld. And at first you're like, oh, interesting. Are we going to see like our husbands like reunite in death? No. What's actually happening is now apparently Gilgamesh and Enkidu are alive again. Well, Enkidu is alive again. And now Gilgamesh has been playing hoop and stick basically <laughs> like one of the old ass fucking ancient games of like ball and stick and his game his like game pieces have fallen into the underworld somehow and Enkidu who is now apparently alive is like I'll go get them for you Gilgamesh is like yeah thanks husband that'll be great hey when you go down there though 
act like this, make sure you do this, this, and this, and this, so that the underworld doesn't keep you. Because if they clock that you're a live person in the underworld, they'll fucking keep your soul forever and you'll actually be dead. And Enkidu is like, I fully got you. But he goes down and he literally does all the things that Gilgamesh told him not to fucking do. So they clock that he's a living person in the underworld and they keep him. So Gilgamesh is devastated and prays to the gods to bring Enkidu back. Uh, Shamash is the only one who listens and Shamash makes a huge crack open in the earth and Enkidu's ghost jumps out of it. And then he, Gilgamesh and Enkidu sit and talk to each other about all of the crazy shit that Enkidu saw like in the underworld. Like, did you see fucking uh, uh, Joe from down the street? Like, how's Joe doing? He died, you, you remember he like died when his like house caught on fire like last week or whatever. Like, how is he, is he all right? <laughs> like that, that type of level of like talk happens between them for the rest of the tablet. And that's the end of the epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> Weird story to add to it. Truly. No, I, I get, I would have understood if it was like Gilgamesh's death and exactly. him reuniting with Enkidu in the underworld. Yeah. That would make sense to send like, and there's no reference to time, is there? In the last no. tablet? Okay. So this could have been at any given point. Essentially, that is what people are thinking. That like, we're really unsure if like the the scribe that was making the Acadian, the long Acadian chronological epic meant to add this, like was writing it and meant to have it be part of the epic, but eventually meant to like configure it to fit in within the narrative and not necessarily at the end of it probably what the purpose was but didn't that he didn't end up getting quite that far or if he did we don't have the remnants of those changes to like actually fit it within the narrative all we can tell now about this fragment is that it was written at the end of all of this and we know it's by the same scribe we know it was for the same epic but it identifies itself as tablet 12 all of the other ones have been identified by the scribe chronologically correct, except for this one. We just don't know. So my guess, I mean, I, there's no legitimate basis for this because I, you know, have not studied any of this and I'm not, I don't know anything about this other than what Sam just told me, but my guess to but the why of tablet 12 is that it was probably meant as a premonition dream sequence that is happening or is supposed to happen concurrently when Enkidu is dreaming of his death. Yeah. So Enkidu is That's dreaming of his cool. death and Gilgamesh is dreaming of them like playing around, having a good time and also seeing Enkidu's death. That's a, it, that's a insightful thought, actually, there. That's, that's a pretty good thought. Yeah, because yeah. it could be seen as, like, Gilgamesh playing around is them literally just fucking around in their town, like, and, and all over the place, because that's literally all they did. 
<laughs> it is very clearly a game. Like the, it, they are specific pieces of what we know as historians are an ancient game. Uh, it's essentially a hoop and stick game. Yes, yes, <laughs> like, yes. But but in his dream, but in his dream, the hoop and stick game is meant to be like the fact that Gilgamesh and uh, and Enkidu are just dicking around, having fun. And eventually their fun will bring about the demise of Enkidu, which it eventually, which it does. I mean, that's what I would see it as. Oh, that'd be great. And, and to be honest, I would track with lots of the things that happen in the rest of the epic, because if you were were right, then it would make sense. And we would expect them to be like, okay, some of the things that we may be missing are the maybe small contextual beginning of this i.e gilgamesh tells ninson his mom about the dream he had which was something that he did a lot in the epic in all of the versions of the epics so it would be very understandable if like oh we're just missing that really short like part of the beginning of it where it's like gilgamesh went to ninson and it was like i just had a dream mom this was what my dream was (laughs) yeah dream and what we would have then probably gotten at the end was ninson being like ah, this is what the dream means. And she would have interpreted the dream for him basically in the same yeah. way that she does in a bunch of the other points in the epic. Yeah, no, that's a, actually a really interesting theory. I could see that being real. Yeah. Just very, very briefly, like I'm not going to go over all of the other versions and the other Sumerian poems and like all of their deviations. None of them offer any um story content basically that is enough to kind of like warrant going into super detail here they all essentially fall into the like same area other two things that are are the other two poems that i'm gonna just talk about briefly one of the sumerian poems is called in those days in those far off days um this is one that relates to the 12th tablet of the standard version so it's the the story of Enkidu going down in the underworld really corresponds to a different Sumerian poem, in particular the the creation, the Sumerian creation myth, um, and the story of Inanna and the Huluku tree. So Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh's world has a link there between those two um, Sumerian stories, basically in this tablet. The last thing there is a tablet. Um, for a Sumerian poem called The Great Wild Bull is Lying Down. It is about Gilgamesh's death. So this is essentially like what Katie was talking about. This would be, have been something that like we would have more expected to have been the last tablet, how the gods are deciding his fate after he dies. This would also make sense because another thing that uh, survives in very fragmented stuff that we have in later historical archaeological sort of findings is that Gilgamesh, either the Gilgamesh that we know, or potentially someone who just maybe has the same name. He has like a presidential term of being the like judge in the netherworld. This ancient Sumerian poem about the great wild bull is lying down has a part in it where 
the gods are talking about like, okay, now that Gilgamesh is dead, let's decide what he's going to do now in the afterlife. We think that maybe this would have been something that would have been bridging that gap between what we know as a Gilgamesh that has that is a judge in the underworld and the Gilgamesh of this epic of Gilgamesh. Like this would have maybe been the story that would have told like, okay, now that he's dead, then the gods talk to each other and we're like, let's appoint him judge of the underworld. That would have been something like yeah. two narratives together, basically. I'm sure you've noticed it. There's relationships to the Bible. <laughs> like- yes. There's, there's very obvious ones, right? Um, and Fishtem is Noah. Thank you. There we go. And the, and the God who basically tried to wipe everybody out is Yahweh. It's weird because the, in this story, there are two gods. There's the God that decides that he's going to flood well, and murder than- everybody. Yeah. Well, yes. But in that particular, in Noah's story, yes. there is a God that is planning to drown everybody. And then there's the God that tells him, hey, you should build a boat so you don't die. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's two separate people in this Gilgamesh story, but in the Christian lore, it is just one person. It's Yahweh. And he's like, I'm a murderer, all these folks, but you should build the boat. I like you. (laughs) Basically. I like you, but you should build a boat. So your family is cool. Like save all the animals. So that is one of the very obvious biblical similarities. I'm going to talk about just very briefly some of the other ones, and then I'm going to go into a little more detail on the Noah's flood ones. There was a definite Garden of Eden vibe when um, Gilgamesh goes through the tunnel after being let into the tunnel by the scorpion people. When he comes back out, okay, so in the area that he meets Siduri and, and Urshanabi, he comes out into what is called the Garden of the Gods. And it's like a paradise garden. And this is where, you know, in this realm is where Anapishtim is. He's out in like a random like island in a sea in this realm. That it means that that's where the secret eternal life is, which very obviously corresponds to a garden of Eden. Also referenced like the hanging gardens of Babylon, like. Hanging gardens of Babylon, especially in at the end when he went and saw Anapishtim and then he brings the, the plant back the the ocean plant we have a snake being being the creature that is the one that steals that plant that yeah. has the, that has the youth bringing effects i forget the word that we use in literature right now i would probably remember it if i was sober but i'm not sober <laughs> spoiler alert there's a word for this where um, it's a story that gives you a reason of why nature is the way it is. So like, oh, this is the story of why goats scream like humans, or this is the story of why the, the um, you know, the trees lose their leaves in the winter. Um, those type of stories, it falls under this category, and I can't remember the name of that right now. But it's one of those because this is essentially the story in in ancient Mesopotamia of why snakes shed their skin. Very obviously, we know that because the snake comes up and takes the plant and eats it and then continues going. And it says because the snake ate that, they shedded their skin. It's shedded. Oh, my God. Listen to me. Drunk. Drunk AF. So I'm so sorry. I apologize to God and my mother right now. It sheds its skin. Because that's what the plant was supposed to be doing. That was what Utnapishtim said the plant did, was it wasn't going to give eternal life 
to Gilgamesh, but it was going to make him younger. It was going to take back. It was going to turn back the clock on his years, basically, yeah. to bring him back to a little bit of a younger age. But because the snake is the one who did that, he shed his skin. And that is the origin story of in, in ancient Mesopotamia of why snakes shed their skin. Hello, ding dong. The snake in the Garden of Eden is like, like, this is a very obvious parallel there. So that's the Garden of Eden parallel. Siduri gives advice when Gilgamesh is in the like pseudo Garden of Eden, basically. And he's like, I want to know how to get across the sea to go find it in a pishtim. This is the lady, Siduri, who tells him to go to Urshanabi. When she is giving him advice, um, remember I said that like she tried to convince him at first, like to not do this, like, and to just kind of appreciate life to its fullest. And one of the things that Siduri says is a triple stranded rope is not easily broken. This is a full statement that we have that survives in the fragments of these tablets that Siduri says to Gilgamesh. And this is really fucking interesting because if there are any biblical scholars listening, I, first of all, I apologize. I'm so sorry that you've heard the word fuck so many times, but also you recognize this, I'm sure from Ecclesiastes. It is a proverb that is pretty well known. So that is a really fucking interesting thing that that very blatant word for word, similar statement from Ecclesiastes is represented here and something that Siduri says to Gilgamesh. The Noah's flood thing. It's pretty obvious. There was a huge ass flood. Um, Landed on a hill. People are still searching for that dumb boat. This is great evidence that Noah's flood in Genesis was very likely a historical thing that did happen, not over the entire motherfucking globe, you goddamn ingrates, but yeah. in the Mesopotamian air, in the Mesopotamian area, yes. yes, very likely did happen and is very likely true because this is a huge corroborating story of that. Yeah. That's huge. That is a huge fucking thing that says that not just, not just the people who are writing the biblical accounts that become what is known as the Holy Bible today had knowledge of a flood like this and a figure like Noah. Other people in the same fucking area had the same exact narrative of a flood happening and a guy building a boat and saving his family and saving as many animals as he fucking could surviving this really devastating flood that wiped out the population around there like that's a huge I mean that's a win for you guys people who like want to believe in the bible like that's a great win it's so fucking cool that one of the most ancient recorded things that we have actually is something that makes Noah's story real in terms of Mesopotamia my like, guess is the story cool. from Genesis came from this story. Other little biblical parallels. Ninti is um, the Sumerian goddess of life. And she was created from Enki, the god uh, that is referenced in this epic sometime. Enki had his rib taken out to basically heal after he had eaten some forbidden flowers. And from that rib was created Ninti. So they're Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. in the book of giants this is not actual bible in terms of canon in terms of like the catholic the 
Catholic canon of what the Bible is, the book of Enoch is not canonical. It is apocryphal, but um, the book of giants is mentioned in the Bible, as is the book of Enoch. In the book of giants, there is a part where Gilgamesh, the Sumerian hero, is mentioned, and his fight with Humbaba is what is being mentioned in that part of the book of giants. And it's mentioned in conjunction with talking about the watchers and giants in general which are a part of the book of Enoch basically like the whole thing of what the book of Enoch is is the watchers and all that crazy shit enter marvel so funny that you say that pop culture the epic of Gilgamesh is of course just rampant because of the fact that it's one of the oldest fucking stories known to man so like yeah it permeates the shit out of everything I'm not going to go over everything that it permeates because that would just take forever, but I will cover, I'm going to like just list some stuff that is very funny and interesting to like know about like where Gilgamesh is even to this day. In the Grimm Tales, the Brother Grimm Tales, there's a story called the 12 Dancing Princesses. There is in that story a part where they're going through a dark tunnel and at the end of the tunnel, there is this beautiful, shiny, jewel-decorated, amazing orchard slash garden. At this point in history, this was around 1857, when the Brothers Grimm were drafting this folktale. The Epic of Gilgamesh had not been rediscovered at that point. <laughs> so they would have not had any knowledge of that. That wouldn't have been them being like, oh, I just read what they found of the epic of gilgamesh out in you know ancient samaria i'm gonna like use that as a motif in my like folk tales that i'm writing no the brothers grim didn't do that they just wrote the actual story and later on we get stuff that confirms that the epic of gilgamesh had this type of stuff that was happening even way before that so more continuity of the fact that these stories travel through oral narratives, oral tradition, oral storytelling, word of mouth shit, they permeate everywhere. In 1947, there was a story called The City Beyond the River by Hermann Kassik. It's essentially like a post-war Germany sort of retelling. It's like a derivative work, basically, of Gilgamesh was in post-war Germany. <laughs> in the Time Masters and Time Bomb, so that was 1953-1971 by Wilson Tucker, uh, Gilbert Nash is the protagonist, and he is a very obvious Gilgamesh parallel. There is Gilgamesh in, from 1966 by Guido Bachmann. This is um, an early German classic. They started writing queer literature. This is a very German genre, and um, it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a genre that um, examines and kind of explores the ideas and the possibilities of queerness um, between Gilgamesh and Enkidu and like that being like a thing and not just like some weird random conspiracy theory but like maybe just like very fucking obvious and very much a huge part of the goddamn story um I swear if the people who wrote these stories were still alive they would be banging their heads with rocks at how stupid I, I told you flat out he'd love Enkidu as a wife what part of that was unclear to you people? Right? I literally said they're fucking married. Like, what part of this? Like, I started this story with he's fucking dudes and women. Like, <laughs> That's what I'm 
like what part of this do you not get like the the guy the scribe who put this who put this to stone is just like somewhere in the afterlife just rolling over and just like banging pounding his head to the ground at how stupid people are because we try to fit everything into our our own narratives literature fucking tv films music even even pop music like recent pop music just so much gilgamesh shit everywhere (laughs) there's doctor who shit that deals that has gilgamesh making fucking cameos a very huge japanese like franchise like fictional franchise um that is like a fate it's like a fate franchise so there's like fate stay night there's fate zero there's um a fate strange fake a bunch of other stuff there's like fate there's a fate stay night movie not just um like stories and things and there's comic books and tv shows and video games for the fate universe that are japanese and like gilgamesh is basically a part of like all of them yeah i mean just everywhere like honestly just everywhere even video games he's like everywhere in final fantasy like there's a bunch of different like final fantasy um uh villains and stuff who are gilgamesh and he always has a quote-unquote faithful sidekick enkidu obviously he's learned just everywhere it's just ridiculous that people like there was like a reddit so in ask historians on reddit at one point someone asked from a layman's perspective the relationship between gilgamesh and enkidu and the epic of gilgamesh seems kind of romantic (laughs) what do historians think about this the explanation is gilgamesh repeatedly refers to his feelings for enkidu as loved him like a woman etc is there anyone out there who claims some kind of homoerotic relationship is implied I realize this is kind of a stretch, but I'm curious nonetheless. Maybe in the ancient world, like Greeks, people had gay and straight relationships all the time and it wasn't a big deal. Shout out to this very cute user who is, I'm just going to hopefully assume is being um, earnest in this. Even the like ask historians response. And this is, this is only like years ago. This is like eight years ago when people were still answering in this type of way. People were like, I have to warn one of them. One of the answers is like, okay, I have to leave a quick note here to warn against looking too much into this, hoping to see homosexuality where there is nothing but normal male bonding. Because in other cultures, male bonding takes a more intimate character than it does in like the US. And language used to describe those relationships can strike us as sexual at times but it was just the norm back then. And I'm like, yeah, it was the norm to like peg your fucking bro in the, in the asshole. Like that's fine if that was the norm, but that doesn't mean that because it was the norm, it's somehow not fucking gay. Like it's still goddamn homosexual. It's just that they were not fucking afraid of it. Like we obviously are in this day and age. Oh yeah. my God. people! Like, thank please. you. The crusades. It's, there's just so so much about the answers to like this poor person's ask historians questions where everyone is like yeah like you just got to be careful because what we would consider a very gay and homosexual day was probably just something that was very normal to them and I'm like so what you're saying is being queer was very normal to them because like this is very obviously motherfucking queer you don't peg your fucking bro in the asshole because you're just friends like 
that dude was gay. I don't know how else to tell you this shit. It's not like, oh no, we can no homo this because it was just very normal for man friends to like fucking suck each other off. Like Gilgamesh was very clearly bisexual, if not pansexual, (laughs) like, like the man fucked everything it's the story starts out with him fucking everything like he's clearly bi or pan he doesn't care it's just like basically the like the sum the summation of it is people continuously say like oh you can't read too much like queerness in those relationships because they're they were the closeness between male quote what is always often quote unquote noted as male bonding or male friendship is what they were just the standard was just so much closer and it was very normal for them to do these kinds of things and that fundamentally kind of misses an entire point of what the purpose is of asking of whether or not this is queer because if you want if you look if you are a man and you look at another man who is your friend and you want to fuck that dude like you want him to suck you off or you want to suck him off or you want to fuck him or you want him to fuck you. You are, are interested queer. sexually in that man. You are yeah. interested sexually in a member of the same sex. You are queer. I don't give a shit if they called it queer back then or not. What all you're telling me is when you're saying like, oh, it was just normal back then among male friends is that people fucking accepted queer men more back then than they Mm -hmm. do today that's all that that says yeah you're telling me that you are more intolerant now than people were negative two thousand years before jesus like (laughs) i like i don't i i just don't like literally at this point we have stories and we do we do honestly in in some areas have stories of dudes fucking each other up the asshole and historians will bend over backwards to say like this was a story of typical male bonding back in the day. It wasn't romantic or sexual whatsoever. It was just the actual normal thing that male friends did back then. Do you no. fucking hear yourself? No. If you <laughs> do you fucking hear yourself is my question. Like it's clearly it's sexual. Goddamn like, questions. Like you can't say that it's not sexual because the only reason to do that is to be in- sexual sexual gratification thank you for sexual gratification (laughs) like if if you are bfs with someone and you are off on a mission for for however many years alone with this person you know the day comes along where you just have insane blue balls which is fake but you just have this insane amount of pent-up sexual energy that you need to get out and you're like hmm there's an asshole over there sure that's sexual like that's it's not just like a thing that dudes did because they could no they were doing it with the intention of getting off like if the intention is coming it is sexual i feel like the lord is testing me so much (laughs) i can only bend so far like that's what she said (laughs) (laughs) or he I mean, we're talking about queer characters here. Let's not be be binary about it. That's what they said. They're fucking queer. 
Yeah, I don't that's cool. It's sexual in nature. Just, just end of the goddamn sentence. We can have a great conversation. I would love to have this conversation until the cows fucking come home about like how normal it was for dudes in particular, but for in general, people to be queer in ancient times. We can have yeah. that conversation. That's a great conversation to have because it should 1000% inform how fucking ridiculous we are today about queerness. Because yep. obviously back in ancient times, people were queer all the goddamn time. And it was way more understood as fucking normal and yeah. just totally acceptable than it is today. Today, it, like the the exception does not need to be made for back then. The exception needs to be made for today. Mm -hmm. what doesn't need to happen is oh we have to make sure that we're looking at it through the correct lens of oh this was just how boys were friends back then and we can't actually ever be sexual between the same gender so obviously this doesn't mean that they actually were queer because that's just not pop no that's not that is the that is the opposite end of the spectrum of where we need to be when we're having that's, these conversations <laughs> that is some fucking like boys will be boys shit like there there was an asshole around so i fucked it and no <laughs> like, that is not <laughs> I just needed to bring that up at the tail end of my fucking Gilgamesh rant at this point. It's just been a drunken rant, unfortunately, for hours. Sorry, that is my very, very angry <laughs> rant that can be finally finished. I feel rejuvenated. I feel like I took years off my life. Like I just ate that plant that came out of the bottom of the goddamn, I don't know, Dead Sea. <laughs> or whatever yeah that gives you um your youth back and um everyone's uh totally queer and if they're not queer then they're absolutely cool with other people being queer because it's not fucking weird and that's the world that i live in right now and that's where we're gonna end my portion of this podcast today take it away katie <laughs> okay so uh, my movie has nothing to do with queerness because it is a cartoon movie from the 90s so i wouldn't say i'm not gonna say that all cartoon movies from the 90s don't have things about queerness but this specific movie has nothing to do with queerness at all <laughs> so uh we are watching a movie or i watched a movie that i loved as a child and watched over and over and over and over again at my grandparents' house. And I'm sure Sam was there many times. Very, and very intrigued about what you're talking and about. And right like now. me, probably did not remember jack shit about this movie because while I was watching it, I was like, oh, damn. Oh, shit. <laughs> like, I didn't remember anything about this film while I was watching it. <laughs> okay. So I watched the 1990. A uh, little known but still classic Disney film, DuckTales and the Treasure of the Lost Lamp. Oh, fuck. Okay, DuckTales. Okay, I was in the realm. I was trying to figure out, like, what the fuck is she talking about right now? And I was thinking to myself, <laughs> Goofy movie? The extremely goofy movie? <laughs> oh, no. Goofy <laughs> movie's a fucking classic. Like, <laughs> I couldn't get past the like iconic Disney characters. So DuckTales track. DuckTales, DuckTales falls firmly in the area that I was trying to get at in my brain. Yes. <laughs> so the DuckTales movie as yeah. a background has like you need, you should know a little bit about the characters 
already going into this movie. You could probably watch it without knowing anything about them. Like a little kid would be fine, like just watching this movie. But the DuckTales movie came as the DuckTales show phenomenon was happening. So the DuckTales show is a classic Disney Channel cartoon. It ran for three seasons, I think. And it tells the story of Huey, Dewey, and Louie, who are Donald Duck's nephews. He's like the one who is in charge of them because question mark, we don't know what happened to their parents. But Donald Duck basically enlists in the Navy. And when he enlists in the Navy, he has to leave the boys under the care of another relative. And that other relative that he chooses to give the boys to to watch is Scrooge McDuck, Mr. Moneybags. So if you are kind of familiar with Disney stuff, you definitely know who Donald Duck is. You probably (laughs) know who Huey, Dewey, and Louie are because they were in a whole bunch (laughs) <laughs> they were in a whole bunch of old cartoons with Donald Duck and yeah. you might not know who Scrooge McDuck is but Scrooge McDuck is the Scottish great uncle question mark we don't question really know mark. the f- actual familiar relationship uh, of sort of Donald Duck so, yeah um and so he ends up taking care of the boys and he is, becomes Uncle Scrooge now Scrooge McDuck is based very much on Scrooge from, um, the fuck is that book called? Venezer Scrooge from uh, Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Thank you. He's very much like that is who he's molded after is Ebenezer Scrooge. So Scrooge McDuck is rich. And when I am saying he is rich in this TV show, y'all, I am talking like Jeff Bezos level rich. The man (laughs) literally has a whole like his office building so he has like his house right and then his office building is this giant tower of a building that has a giant like dollar sign on it and his office Mm -hmm. is all the way at the top and his (laughs) office has a giant vault quote unquote like a big bank vault door that i remember as a child like it is reminiscent of like smog's fucking like treasure trove in in every episode of the show in like the the intro of the show um it would start with scrooge mcduck getting up from his office like his breaks while he works because he runs all sorts of businesses and shit his breaks in his office he would like change out of his clothes um and into a bathing suit and he would dive into his giant pool of gold coins in his vault and swim in his fucking money okay that's the level of rich we're talking that scrooge mcduck is (laughs) he has a giant big ass room filled with gold coins and money and different things that he just fucking swims in it's insane so the boys go to live with him in the show after uh donald like leaves to go to the navy and scrooge it's all the all the show is about all the misadventures that the boys and he have because he's like this super rich mogul and the boys are just like naughty ass boys if you've ever seen anything with huey dewey and louie they are just mischief makers so there's other characters involved um scrooge hires a nanny who is mrs begley he has a um he has a butler that takes care of his house and everything. And Mrs. Begley has a 
daughter named Webby who ends up like she also lives at the house with them because the nanny is always there. So the four kids, Huey, Dewey, Louie, and Webby are always there together. They're part of the family. Um, also involved in the show and always around in every version of DuckTales is Launchpad, who is Scrooge McDuck's personal like private pilot, Launchpad mm. McQuack. And he <laughs> is like, how do I describe him? He is like, he's an idiot is what he is. <laughs> Like he can fly a plane, but he's trash at landing it. So he crashes a lot and it's just like, he's a mess. <laughs> and in the show, there's a whole bunch of other characters, but as far as this movie goes, the, those are the characters you need to know. So this movie starts out and they are in the desert searching for the treasure of Kali Baba. Now that sounds wow. insane because it's supposed to be Alibaba, but in this world, you know, they're literal ducks. Kali Baba is literally a dog. Like all of his things that you see is literally a fucking dog with a turban. It is, it is outrageous. Wow. wow. Uh, but yeah, it's fantastic. So, <laughs> so Scrooge has been searching for this treasure of Kali Baba for years and years and years. And he has all this team, these teams set out all over the world, like searching for it. So they go to meet this team that has apparently found something of interest that will interest Scrooge. So Launchpad lands their plane in the desert, which seems like it's supposed to be Egypt because we do see like pyramids and all sorts of different things, but they never say that it's Egypt because it's a cartoon. And uh, of course, Launchpad crashes into an ancient fucking like landmark. There was like these giant pillars that were in this beautiful shape outside the area where they were meeting this group of people and Launchpad just wrecks it and just like in Hercules when he's like fucking around in Thebes Thebes he fucking like knocks down all the pillars like he hits two of them and <laughs> all of the pillars fall down because Launchpad is an idiot <laughs> so they get out of the plane and they go meet with these locals who are part of this digging crew. Um, and they pull up this treasure chest that they found like down in a tunnel that they were digging. And Scrooge like loses his shit. And he's like, holy fuck, we fucking found it. Like, yes, I finally found it after years and years and years. And he opens up, he like breaks the thing and opens up this treasure chest. And it's all just clothes. Like it was a fucking wardrobe. And he pulls out. Each, he throws all of these clothes around and he's just like, what the fuck? And they all land on one of the boys. They're like stacked up on one of the boys. And he gets upset because he gets to the end of the chest and there's nothing in there. And the boys, one of the boys notices that in one of the pockets of the shirts, there was a map or like a rolled up piece of paper. So he hands it to Scrooge and Scrooge opens it. And he's like, oh shit, it's a map. This is going to take me to Kali Baba's treasure. Like, fuck yeah, let's go. There's a character here named Dijon who is one of the locals and ends up being Scrooge's guide through the desert, like to follow the map to get to where he needs to go. Now, Dijon, when this is all happening, sneaks away and ends up going and telling a mysterious man named Murloc about the map. Like they fucking found this treasure chest and inside this treasure chest was a map. And Murloc's like, well, where's the fucking map? And he's like, well, I didn't take it. Like Scrooge has it. 
<laughs> so Merlot gets pissed and he's like, bruh, like, come on, use your brain. <laughs> uh, so we clearly can see from the beginning oh, that Merlot is the bad guy. So Merlot's like, fuck it, whatever. We'll let Scrooge find the treasure and then we'll take it from him after he's found it. Like, that'll be the easiest way. So we don't have to go hunting for it. We just got to follow him and let him do his right. thing. And they follow the map and they're on uh, riding by Camelback. It's Scrooge, the four kids and Launchpad. I don't know why Webby, Webby's mom wasn't there. I don't know why the nanny wasn't there. It doesn't make any sense. But, but it was just Scrooge and Launchpad and the four kids. And they're searching and they're like, well, it should be here, but there's nothing. Like, it's just fucking desert. And then Launchpad's camel trips on what appears to be a very small like pyramid shaped rock you know of course there's a joke at Launchpad's expense because he can't even like he can't go anywhere without crashing they start feeling around the stone and realize that it's bigger than it like it's buried it's something that's buried so they start digging a time lapse happens like they're just digging and digging and then magically a giant fucking pyramid appears like huge (laughs) Like they dug for 20 seconds and then a whole pyramid existed. (laughs) Like cartoon magic, (laughs) like for real cartoon magic. My brain was like, these people would have died of these ducks would have died of dehydration. (laughs) Like before they got to the second tier of this fucking pyramid. (laughs) This is the, this is the type of magic that, that allows fucking Gilgamesh and Enkidu to go to fucking Humbaba's forest by themselves and kill Humbaba and all his sons and then chop down the entire fucking forest and drag it back on their big ass fucking raft no for real that is in like a day that is for real some <laughs> some cartoon shit right there so they roll up on this they get down they dig all the way down to the bottom they get to the door they like figure out how to open it he reads scrooge can read hieroglyphs apparently and he like reads and figures out where the entryway to the door is and opens it and then they make their way into the tunnel or into the pyramid um as they go through the pyramid there's all sorts of booby traps that kali baba has set up to stop people from getting to his to his treasure of course it's just like any indiana jones movie we've ever seen any mummy movie any any type of movie about ancient Egypt and any type of treasure there's always booby traps around it to stop people from getting to it because people are greedy in a brilliant uh turn of writing the boys are like oh well what does our adventure manual say because they're like scouts or whatever they pull out they're like duck scouts manual and it says to use marbles (laughs) I don't I'm sorry I don't know why that was so funny to me right now (laughs) so they pull out their manual and the manual says when you're caught in a sticky situation use your marbles or don't lose your marbles or something like that and quite literally one of the boys grabs out he's like well lucky i brought them and pulls out a whole bag of marbles and decides to shoot marbles onto the little like triggers for for the um, booby traps so there's like little buttons in the ground like that are built into the ground that will cause all these booby traps to go off. So they shoot marbles to turn the little things off. Start pinballing the shit out of this business. They really are. They pinball their way all the way through this fucking 
giant pyramid full of booby traps. And eventually they come to a room where with a giant like janky ass rope ladder to a pedestal that has a giant tortoise shell hollowed out empty tortoise shell filled with treasure in it. And Scrooge goes bananas because he's a rich asshole like that. And he's like, holy fuck, we fucking found it. I fucking found it. Like, oh my God, this is the treasure I've been waiting for for so long. And he runs up, they all run up this janky ass thing and end up at the, with the treasure. And they're all looking, looking at it. There's like giant diamonds and rubies and all sorts of crazy shit in it. While they're looking at it, we see Webby who finds an oil lamp like an old oil lamp. And she asks Uncle Scrooge if she could have uh, the oil lamp. She says it's going to make a great teapot for her tea set because she's a child. And he's like, he looks at it. He kind of inspects it. He's like, oh yeah, I don't care about this oil lamp. Go ahead. She's intrigued by the oil lamp. They pack up all the treasure and make Launchpad, who's the biggest like buffest dude, like start to take it across so that, you know, they have the fucking treasure, right? In swoops a giant fucking like eagle thing that grabs onto the bag of treasure and takes it back over to the bridge or over to the other side of the bridge, the safe side, and cuts the bridge. And then Murloc reveals himself. He was the bird. He can fucking transform into animals. He hits the booby trap trigger for this treasure room. So the booby trap trigger in this room causes the pedestal that the tortoiseshell was sitting on to start start sinking into the ground and at the bottom of this treasure room it's filled with scorpions like giant fucking scorpions so rather than huh why are there so many parallels between the epic of gilgamesh and fucking ducktales right now (laughs) oh just wait if this movie is gonna gonna take a hard left from the epic of gilgamesh and go right into aladdin in a minute so just wait (laughs) so murloc has he's grabbed the giant sack of treasure and him and dijon have like just fucking left they're like bye y'all are gonna die from these scorpions as the thing is sinking down to the ground uh they get the idea they flip the turtle shell over and hide underneath it so that the scorpions can't attack them basically and they run to where mm. the exit of that like bottom floor thing is. And they find the edge of a river because of course there's a river inside of this pyramid underneath the desert shore. So <laughs> they flip the turtle shell over and they jump in the turtle I shell and ride it down the river. It spits them out. They like kind of towards the end it gets all shallow or the the cave that they're in gets really small and they end up getting like soaked and pushed into the water but then they get pushed out into this like oasis area and they wash up on the shore everyone's like hooray thank god we're fucking alive we didn't get murdered by scorpions and scrooge is just like beside himself sad like super emo like i've been searching for that treasure for 40 years and if it takes another 40, I will find that guy and I will get my treasure back because that's some bullshit. So Webby offers, yeah, yeah. we find here, find out here that Webby still has that oil lamp. She had like shoved it in her bag or something at the time when they were all up on the, on the little pedestal. So Webby offers the oil lamp to Scrooge to make him feel better. I'm like, oh, well, you know, 
you don't have the whole treasure, but here's at least a little part of it. And Scrooge is just like, it's okay, Webby. Like you can have it. It'll make a fine addition to your tea set. And he just is sad beside himself. Then it cuts to Murloc, who is now outside of the pyramid. He has pulled the treasure out all the way out. And he opens up the bag and starts searching through the treasure. And he's looking and looking and looking and looking. And we find out the only part of this treasure that he wanted was that fucking lamp. Who would have thought based on the fucking title of this movie? (laughs) Yes. So here we go. Back in Duckburg, which I love that their city is fucking called Duckburg. Scrooge is super depressed about losing the treasure that he's been looking for forever and is just grumpier than usual he doesn't want to work a full day of work he doesn't want to do anything he just wants to like wallow in him his self-pity like i get that i'd be mad too huey dewey and louie and webby are all sitting down to eat breakfast and webby is polished starts to polish her teapot to get it ready to be part of her tea set when she polishes it it starts to shake and all the kids freak out and then guess what out pops a genie this genie reminds me a lot of the character at the very beginning of Aladdin who is trying to sell you wares, just the des- the overall design of him. Yeah, it's, way long Yes, it's very much, he has a turban, he has the like parachute pants, he's got like the whole nine yards. So of course, because the kids have discovered this genie, kids do outrageous kid shit and wish for outrageous kid shit. So the very first wish that Webby makes is to have an elephant and the elephant causes chaos. The like nanny walks in and is like, holy fuck, that's an elephant. Like, and she freaks out. And then one of the other kids has to use their wish to get rid of the elephant basically. Or Webby has to use her her second wish to get rid of the elephant. God damn, like I should be able to just use my fucking wish for what I fucking want. You should be able to like deal with the consequences of your own wish. Jeez. Yeah. Sorry. The kids are just making some crazy wishes, you know, kids shit. Seriously. They wish for like hang gliders. They wish for uh, the biggest ice cream sundae that's ever existed. Like, (laughs) like kid stuff. While this is all happening, they become friends with the genie who they eventually come to known as G. The oh, friends are becoming, or the kids are becoming friends with him and they've you know started to play games with him and they're really just becoming BFFs. And while they're all becoming friends, he tells them about Murloc and who he is and what the deal is and how Murloc was his master before Kali Baba. Murloc has a magic talisman that allows him infinite wishes and also gives him the power to transform into animals. So he could be anywhere at any time. And G is very scared that he's gonna eventually find him and make him just do all of his bidding. They go to bed. The next day, Webby is hanging out and she decides to use her last wish. And she wishes for all of her toys to come to life to join her and G at their tea party. They're like having a tea party. She wants all her toys to join and all of her toys come to life. And of course, shit gets out of hand because she's got a ton of stuffed animals. And now she has like real life tigers and real life giraffes and all sorts of shit running around the house causing havoc. 
Shit just gets fucking wild. While this is happening, Murloc is now in Duckburg. He transforms himself into a rat to search the Scrooge mansion in search of the lamp. He is like, he knows that Scrooge has it because of course. And he's like, okay, well. Okay, hold on. I'm so sorry. If I miss something that like explains this, just stop me quickly. Okay, go ahead. You can cut it out. But like, if he has the abilities at this point to make himself into a rat, (laughs) to a fucking rat, to like go into the house and like try and find evidence of the shit that he's looking for, why does he not have the magical abilities to just like decimate the fucking house and just like take the shit that he wants? I think the the uh, talisman only allows him to transform like physical form. Okay, um, so and the, then the magic associated with what he can do is limited. It's not like and like oh, with the magic of this, I can make myself a giant, and or with the magic of this, I can tear down the walls of all of this shit and then like just go i mean he probably could if he like transformed into like a dinosaur or some shit but okay yeah for the sake sake of it a children's story and the fact that the villain does not need to be too fucking scary he transforms himself through a rat basically yes and he he's running around this he's running around this house looking for the the lamp right? Because he just wants the fucking genie. While he's running around this house looking for this genie, one of Webby's uh, little tiger toys finds him and eats him. So he is inside this fucking tiger toy. And I don't, I'm so sorry. I'm so loud. I'm so like interrupt you with like my responses. I don't know fine. why. For some reason, the like details of fucking 1990s DuckTales are just so fucking surprising to me right now i'm just writing it yeah yeah (laughs) okay so shit's going wild with all these uh stuffed animal like alive stuffed animals in the house and the nanny the butler scrooge mcduck they're all there just like what the fuck is going on and the kids finally realize like shit the jig is up only one kid has one wish left and that kid is like, God damn it, Webby, you dumb hoe. So he takes the lamp and he rubs it and he says, I wish everything would go back to normal. All the books go back on their shelves. Everything gets put back in place. All the animals go back to being just stuffed animals. And of course, when this happens, Murloc crawls out, uh, is able to crawl out of the toy tiger he was in. Because they did this in front of all of the adults. Scrooge is like, what the fuck? A genie? Like, what the yo. So he gets super douchey and bigoted against genie and is like, okay, well, we're going to use you to make money. And he takes genie and the lamp. And he's like, I could wish for the biggest diamond. No, I could wish for a diamond mine. No, I could wish for all the diamond mines. And he just gets like, super carried away because it's fucking scrooge and he's a dick uh he's a rich asshole as it turns out scrooge decides to take genie with him like he's not gonna leave he's not gonna leave the lamp or genie anywhere because he's not gonna let the genie out of his sight which is honestly that's a good that's a good idea like maybe don't ever leave a genie just out and about for someone to steal right 
And Scrooge has been invited to the Duckburg Archaeological Society banquet because he went on this big thing and found Kali Baba's treasure and it was like a whole thing, right? So he's been invited to this banquet to talk about the experience and finding Kali Baba's treasure and all these different things. And in the middle of Scrooge's speech, Murloc shows up and chases them. And the second that that the genie sees Murloc, he immediately goes to warn Scrooge and forces Scrooge to run away with him. G ends up saving Scrooge um, by hiding them both in the lamp, like up on a chandelier. So what's his head? Like never even looks. He's just like, fuck it. We're going to hide way up here and no one will ever see us. Murloc like flies away or like runs out of the room because there's no one there. He, he thinks Scrooge is somewhere else in the building. So he runs out of the room. And when they get down and are normal again, G just describes basically, you know, all I want is to just be a normal kid. Like, I don't want to be a genie. I hate granting wishes. Like, this is garbage. I just want to be free. A la the genie from Aladdin. Like, it's the same. And Scrooge is like, oh, okay. Well, cool, I guess. Let's get the fuck out of here. yeah so scrooge is just like okay well we need to get the fuck out of here like we can't do anything about that at this moment in time he put he makes genie get back in the lamp which he hates it's the easiest way for them to travel and not be seen scrooge starts running out of the room or running out of the building and on his way like he turns a corner to go down a hallway and he runs into a dining cart and like trips of course and falls And when he falls, he drops the lamp and he picks up the lamp and then runs out of the building. And then he gets out, Launchpad is waiting for him in his helicopter. He like jumps in the helicopter. Murloc sees him and is like chasing them and tries to catch him, but doesn't. Back in the building, Dijon, who was in there like searching for Scrooge as well, finds a lamp on the ground and realizes, oh shit, this is the lamp. And he Mm -hmm. calls out, he gets the genie out and he's like, oh my God, Murloc is going to be so fucking excited and so proud of me. Like this is about to be the jam. And the genie's like, well, like, hold on. Why do you have to tell Murloc? Like you could be the one who's rich and powerful. And like, basically genie's trying to save his own ass because he knows Murloc will just fuck him up. And Dijon's like, oh, okay. Sounds like a good idea. Like, let's do it. So Dijon wishes for Scrooge McDuck's fortune. He doesn't wish just to be rich. He wishes specifically for Scrooge McDuck's fortune. When Scrooge rolls up to his like vault, because that's where he was going to go hide the lamp in his vault because it's the most secure place in all of Duckburg. He rolls up into the building and is immediately arrested for trespassing because now belongs to Dijon. So Scrooge is in jail. Dijon's hella rich. Genie is doing Dijon's bidding. After they get arrested, or after Scrooge gets arrested, Nanny Beagley, the butler, and all four of the kids pool all of their money to bail him out of jail because they're also broke because Scrooge is the only one with fucking money. As they're leaving the jail, they come up with Operation Lift the Lamp to break into Scrooge's vault and office building. So they start talking about it and what's going on and realize that Scrooge knows every bit of security that exists in that building and all the different ways to get around it and all the codes to access it. He tells the boys the code and they sneak into the building and they're like 
going through all these different like lasers and all sorts of crazy shit to get into this thing to open the door to let Scrooge in because Scrooge is on the other side and he can't do all the cool shit the little kids can. So Scrooge gets into the building and he ends up in the room with Dijon and almost gets the lamp, but Murloc gets there first. Murloc has been a cockroach and following the boys the whole fucking time. So he gets up and steals the lamp first. And as soon as he gets the lamp, all fucking hell breaks loose. He turns, he puts his magic talisman on top of the lamp like it magically links to it. And now he gets infinite wishes. So he, shit. yeah. So he wishes for Dijon <laughs> to be turned into a pig because he was just an asshole and, you know, didn't tell Murloc that he had the lamp. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he wishes for the building that they're in, which is Scrooge's like business slash vault uh, to be turned into a fortress, just like the old one that they used to have in the olden days and then for the fortress to return to its old location the fortress like after it transforms into this giant fortress it uproots itself and starts floating across the world to question mark egypt where it used to be and it's just a fucking mess so so the three boys and scrooge are all in this fortress still because they were in the building when it changed and Murloc and the genie are all there as well. And they're trying to figure out a way to get it away from, to get the lamp away from Murloc because he's just insane and crazy shit's going to go down. So the boys pull out their trusty marbles again and flick a marble perfectly so that it knocks the lamp, knocks the amulet off of the, the top of the lamp. Murloc needs the amulet. He's concerned about the amulet because that's what's giving him infinite wishes and the ability to transform. So he like turns to go grab the amulet and Scrooge uses his cane to grab the fucking lamp. He's like, nah, bitch, lamp. And they end up like wrestling over it. Then they fall off the edge of the building and they're falling through the air trying to get to this lamp because the lamp is falling faster because it's metal. And they're fighting and they're fighting and they're fighting. And eventually, and Murloc is not in his normal human form. He's like this giant griffiny eagle thing that he like this that he has taken form of because he was just jumped into the sky. He's like, I need to be able to fly and do some shit. So Scrooge is trying to get to the lamp. Murloc's trying to stop him from getting the lamp, and they're you know fighting. And then Scrooge is like, you know what? Fuck this. And he pulls the like necklace thing (laughs) that uh murloc had off of him so the amulet falls like starts falling to the ground and immediately murloc is transfer like transformed back into a person and he falls because he can't fucking fly and he doesn't have the amulet to transform anymore scrooge grabs the lamp out of the out of the air as they're falling genie is like flies to him and is like you know you have to make a wish right now like so scrooge makes a wish and he says i wish that me and my family and my vault and everything were back in duckburg where we belong where everything belongs of course the genie makes it happen everything goes back to normal murloc falls to his death question mark this would i'm going to assume that happened a lot in 
old Disney stuff. Like there was no explanation, but that person was just also cartoons and children's things. So like, yeah, back in Duckburg, everything has returned to normal. Like he's the richest guy in town. He owns the building again. You know, his family is all safe. And Scrooge decides to end all of this wishes lamp mess and is like, you know what? This is just too fucking chaotic. You know, even if I have to bury this lamp at the bottom of the ocean, like this shit is too wild. And the kids are like, no, dude, don't do that. G is our friend. We can't have that. Blah, 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 blah. Like they just are pleading and they're upset and they're crying. And Scrooge is like, no, I have to, like, I got to make a wish. So he makes his final wish. And in true Disney Aladdin form, he wishes for Genie to become a real boy. Yes. So G becomes a kid. And as soon as he turns into a real kid, the lamp just disintegrates. It just becomes a pile of ash because a lamp with no Genie is not a lamp at all. It's not a magic lamp at all. As soon as he becomes a kid, the kids start playing cops and robbers because that's the first thing he wanted to do. And then in true DuckTales form, at the end of the very, the very end of the movie, Scrooge goes and dives into his money vault or goes to dive into his money vault and then notices Dijon, who is no longer a pig um, and is a person and is trying to steal money from Scrooge's vault. Scrooge chases Dijon and then the DuckTales theme plays and the credits roll. Was this video, was this movie like, four hours long no I feel like you just covered like three epics <laughs> well that's because there Disney was so much story in that tiny ass motherfucking video holy yeah shit. it's it's it only so like it's fun. only like 80 minutes 90 minutes maybe uh Disney was really good at compiling epics and like just throwing elements of them into a story because they didn't need a lot of backstory because kids don't need a lot of backstory as it turns out you just like oh hey this thing happened cool let's move on I forgot like legitimately forgot 90% of this movie and when I tell you that I watch this movie like once a week every week of my childhood I am not I remember I remember DuckTales I remember the visuals of watching it with you I remember the show yeah. like I remember watching the show religiously but I couldn't tell you fucking any details and I guarantee I watched this exact same video with you like you're talking about I guarantee I fucking watched this video a gajillion times because yeah. you watched it a gajillion times for when I was before I started watching it like I could clearly remember the scene where they find the treasure in the turtle thing and then I remember them flipping the turtle shell over to escape the scorpions and then jumping in the treasure or jumping in the turtle shell to like ride down the river. But that's yeah. all I remember. I don't remember Murloc coming and stealing all the treasure. I don't remember, I don't remember Murloc at all, which is insane to me because the second he spoke in this movie, I was like, that's fucking Christopher Lloyd. Ah, shit. Like, nice. My brain, my child brain, did not retain any information about Murloc, which I think is a fantastic name for a bad guy, like an evil sorcerer. Oh, sure. Bad guy, like combination Mer- Merlin. And- yeah, fucking fantastic. Like, what a good name. Yeah, but I didn't remember anything about him. I didn't remember any, like, I remember the genie, like, existing. 
and the giant Sunday that they wished for. I guarantee the reason you remember the Sunday, because I know this is the reason I probably remember it, was because I guarantee every time they wished for it, you were like, I fucking wish I had one of those right now, too. (laughs) Legitimately, it was one of those like kitty plastic, those plastic kitty pools filled with giant balls of ice cream. I'm like, we could fucking do that right now. Like, what's stopping us? We are adults. We're we're adults. What's stopping us from doing that right now? An entire like fucking case side of one of the the, like freezer portions and Walmart and we could fucking make that. Yes. Everybody bring a one gallon plastic tub of fucking ice cream and someone's in charge of like five bottles of chocolate syrup and I'll buy the kiddie pool. Everyone just come to my house. We'll, we'll just have a giant fucking Sunday. The fact that I'm legitimately trying to work out how we could actually do this in real life maybe says a few things about me, one of which should not be overlooked that I maybe am like unhealthy when it comes to my cravings when I am drunk. But ice also, cream is delicious. So <laughs> if I felt like how fucking great of a party would that be? If you and I had gone to a party where somebody had filled a goddamn kiddie pool with ice cream, I had to fucking remember that party for the rest of my goddamn life. Oh, absolutely. We're essentially just giving gifts to like the coming generations, basically. If absolutely. Maybe what I'm getting at here is that if slash when I have a baby shower, a kiddie pool ice cream sundae may be on the cards. How about we wait? How about we wait till your kid can also join us for ice cream for said ice cream? I'll consider. I'll potentially consider. (laughs) This movie is great. Like Sam said, it does like pull in several different epics that were just kind of like mangled together into the making of this film. I didn't realize as a child that this movie came before aladdin because as a kid you're just kind of watching stuff all at the same time we're talking about all this i was thinking to myself like no you said this was 1990 this is before aladdin i was surprised i was like yeah so this movie came out two years before aladdin it was done by disney's production side company called disney movie tunes which has made a lot of films but all of their films that they have, like that have the movie tunes like logo or offering, are all like sequels or branches to other already established Disney things. So, like DuckTales, this movie was based off of the <laughs> DuckTales show. Um, and then a bunch of the other stuff that they were involved in was all of those Tinkerbell movies that came out, all the fairy movies, those are all part of this. Uh, movie tunes situation so it's really interesting like clearly the people who made like when they made Aladdin they used this movie as reference like I know the story of Aladdin was taken for this story as well like they took parts of Aladdin and threw it into the DuckTales movie but in the shaping of the genie and the way that the genie acts the things that they were looking for when they were looking for the person to play the genie like very clearly came from what the person who did this movie like came up with it was rip 
Rip Taylor, I think is his name. He has a very distinct voice. The way that he portrayed the genie was just very carefree and charismatic. It was fucking fantastic. Very flamboyant. You can tell after they made this movie, when they went in with the idea of casting Robin Williams for the genie, they were like, yes, that's perfect. And they animated clearly some of the stuff just envisioned Robin Williams doing it. And that's how they came to what ended up being genie from Aladdin. Like it's a combination of all the impromptu stuff that um, Robin Williams was already doing with like a basis in this genie from DuckTales movie. And it was fucking weird watching it because I felt clearly noticing that. Talking about the theme of this movie, talking about Aladdin, which let's get it straight right now before I start talking about this, because after things that I say, people, I'm sure the, you know, five people who listen to this on the planet will be like, wow, she is too woke and too liberal. I don't know what you're going to say, but you're going (laughs) to say it. And whatever it is, it is dumb. But yeah, the whole idea of the like, oh, Arabian Nights type of shit, like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves and the 1000, like the fact that a lot of this comes from the 1001 Arabian Nights, as yeah. well as shit from like the Epic of Gilgamesh and other mm-hmm. like and Indian fucking shit and all of that racism. <laughs> it's yeah. so hard to. And I like, I hear this, I hear, I hear all of my fucking fellow millennials out there because I am of your generation. I'm of your upbringing and I understand it. That's so hard to talk about. That's so hard to accept. That's so hard to like, really even like, like think about when you're enjoying the shit that you really love. I love Aladdin. Aladdin is legitimately my favorite disney movie of all time hands fucking down it i was obsessed with aladdin when i was a kid i he was i 1000 percent could not decide if i wanted to be jasmine or aladdin and fuck jasmine slash fuck aladdin you know what i'm talking about when you have crushes on people i'm telling you right now you know, when I learned about being bisexual when I was older, you you look back at the like things <laughs> about like what you were doing with stuff when you were growing up and you kind of like notice like, oh, that suddenly makes sense now that I know that I'm older, that I'm, you know, this particular identity, sexual identity or, you know, gender identity, et cetera, things like that. And one of the things that made total fucking sense to me when I realized later in life as an adult that I was bisexual was I was like this makes so much fucking sense now about how obsessed I was a with Aladdin but b with any of the type of things that I would get obsessed about when I was a kid I was very obsessed with Aladdin I loved Aladdin so much but I could like part of that obsession was I could not reconcile I was like do I want to be Aladdin do I want to be Jasmine do I want to be with Aladdin? Do I want to be with Jasmine? Like, do I want to kiss them? You know, as a kid, that's kind of like the purity of what you're thinking about. Like, I'm like, oh shit. But like the pinnacle of a relationship is like, would we ever kiss in our lifetimes? You know what I'm saying? Like, 
our lips would potentially maybe touch someday in reality. Yeah. That would happen. And that would legitimately be something that I would think about all the time when I was a kid. I loved, loved Aladdin. I also loved Jasmine. And like, that was like a huge dichotomy about like, when I became older, I was like, oh, that makes so much fucking sense now that I'm bisexual. Like, that's why that ma- that ha- that was happening was because I couldn't decide between the genders. But anyway, me saying that is to tell the audience right now, like, I fucking get it. Aladdin was my favorite story and I'm an adult and I can say it now because it's fucking true. Aladdin is super fucking racist. <laughs> And so is a lot of Disney shit, as well as other children's shit that was coming out and is still coming out to today, but especially in like the 90s slash um, late 80s to about early aughts slash 2010s, etc. Like hella racist children-y slash shit or not even children's stuff, but just normal story shit. Like the obsession with Middle Eastern stories and like Islamic informing of uh, stories and how exotic that shit was. Like just racism for days on end. And it makes sense when you know about what was happening historically and what was going on in the world. It makes sense that suddenly in this around this time was when stories dealing with orient quote unquote orientalism or quote unquote you know like middle eastern themes and things like that suddenly cropped up and started rearing their heads obviously it makes sense because that was around the time that western uh empires unfortunately were being pieces of shit (laughs) to the middle east and you know to uh empires that were not uh western and so that is like a huge issue that is hard to reconcile but it's okay to like it's okay to enjoy the story and it is it's possible to simultaneously acknowledge the racism that is attached to it like that is possible you that has to be something that you do because there's no way that I would be able to for instance divorce my love and like literal adoration of Aladdin when I was a kid from like my queer identity today that would never be something that I would be able to separate and that has to be something that I reconcile as being like okay well that informed some of the things that I understood for a long time about Middle Eastern people Um, people who were Islamic and all of that type of stuff, that definitely informed my understanding of races and cultures that were not white slash Western. That those, those things can simultaneously exist basically. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that that type of shit was being so embedded, even in children's stuff like Aladdin and what Kay just talked about DuckTales. Um, But I don't want to say this trying to be like, oh, this erases the racism or this like makes it okay somehow because it doesn't. It definitely doesn't. But all I'm saying is raising the the point that without these sort of really sadly racist sort of sudden upcroppings and uh, origin stories of uh small 
creative things that were coming out of the experiences of imperialism and colonialism and all of those things. Without those things, we wouldn't be the adults we are today, basically, where I can be someone who looks back at DuckTales or Aladdin and be like, ah, shit, that was racist. But that was the beginning of my eventual understanding of the fact that racism exists. If you're someone listening to this, this is my experience with it. Like I'm sure Katie draws um, some uh, similar, you know, memories and feelings associated with it. And you're hearing it and you're like, oh God, they fucking called them Kali Baba. Oh God, they fucking like every statue in the goddamn Cave of Wonders was, you know, a dog with a turban on its head. Like, oh gosh, like shoot me. Like it was a genie who was called just by the way, G, if you're going to call a genie, G. This was 1990, right? When DuckTales came out. Yeah, we're talking about, you know, rap culture, very early rap culture and like, quote unquote, urban culture or counterculture or black culture um, happening in the U.S. That was a fucking choice. Like, I'm going to say that right now. Oh, it was. And and the things that that genie did were also a choice in regards to that. He does. There are some like urban, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. clothing choices made by the genie at some point like even though none of the other kids are dressed like urban like they're ducks they just wear shirts but he wears like right. full-on clothes even though he's also a duck it's yeah it's weird and poor poor taste poor choice things that are very very slowly changing within animation I'd say across the board, it's not just Disney, it's everybody. Everyone's coming to the realization that, hey, that's fucked up. So let's not do that anymore. Right. Those things can coexist. You can definitely still very lovingly look back on these kids' stories that were 1000% embedded in a lot of racism that was going on in our US culture you can look back on those fondly and you can appreciate the things that the, that it taught you and the memories that it gave you and like how it shaped your identity. And you can also still acknowledge the problematic aspects of it that existed when they were created and still exist today. It can coincide. You don't have to, like, you're not an awful person for having been shaped positively by those stories that were very negatively created, very, you know, created very much so in a space that was very negatively associated with non-white, non-Western races. It's okay to have been influenced positively by those as long as you don't shy away from or ignore or deny the problematic aspects of them. That's Mm -hmm. the caveat. You can't, you can't say or try to, you know, maintain that the good outweighs the bad in that type sort of scenario, because first of all, it doesn't, spoiler mm-hmm. alert. But second of all, because it's not your thing to say it, unless you're someone who is uh, not white and <laughs> slash not European, then it's not your fucking place to say whether or not it outweighs that shit. Like, yeah. 
It's just not. Your, your culture is not the one that is being used as a caricature in a fucking children's tale for the fucking villain origin stories. Um, yeah. And, you know, your culture and all of the things associated with your very valid like way of living isn't something that is being made into like a fantastical like far off landia type of thing in a children's story that you know someone can be obsessed with and it not make them evil even though technically speaking the real version of a scrooge mcduck would have been a really fucking awful person it would have been a fucking huge ceo of huge capitalistic corporations that was obsessed with making money and didn't give a shit about a the poor people whether whatever their race was but b especially the poor people that were not white that they were exploiting in order to gain all of that wealth that they were literally robbing from cultures that they had no fucking business you know putting their shit in you know a a modern a, a normal person Scrooge McDuck would have had no fucking business wanting the treasure of Kali Baba it just it like oh I'm so sorry that you heard about the Kali Baba treasure for the your entire life and you want it so bad too fucking bad <laughs> like it's not your goddamn treasure to have yeah. <laughs> like I don't know what else to tell you yeah but it's one of those things that I think makes a huge sad divide that people emphasize too much white people unfortunately emphasize too much as being where a deal breaker where they have to draw the line that they have to like reject the the stories that were so important to them and like so beloved by them when they were growing up you know learning this type of stuff about it is something that they can't reconcile so i'm here to tell you you not only have to reconcile it because it's true but it's it's okay to reconcile it. It's okay to have had positive experiences and have beloved memories about these stories while also knowing that they're racist because you knowing that and you acknowledging it and you trying to work toward a future where that type of shit doesn't happen anymore. That's yeah. the important stuff. The important stuff is not trying to keep that from the public because I don't want anyone to know that I may or may not have enjoyed Aladdin when I was fucking two. I definitely am a white person. So that comes with my privilege and that comes with my position in systemic racism. And that comes with, you know, all of that unfortunate shit attached to it. But that's not something that I consciously choose. That is something that I consciously try to reject. And every day I learn. Um, learning about the fact that one of my most beloved stories, whether it is this ducktail story that Katie just talked about, or whether it's Aladdin or one of the other ones, learning about how racist that is doesn't mean you're a racist. It just means that you were a product, you know, not as much victimized, unfortunately, as the non-white people or the, you know, were victimized, but you were just as much a, a byproduct of that racism in, back in the day. You can't make yourself beholden to the fact that when you were two, you were showed a racist story that you didn't fucking know was racist. And yeah. 
you totally understood as just a story about regular people in life. Okay, so seven word synopsis on these stories. You got to figure it out, Sam. (laughs) I'll go first. Yes. Okay. For the epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh and Enkidu are queer relationship goals. Like they were legitimately ride or die for each other. Um, the only part of this, a part of that story that genuinely didn't make sense to me was why Gilgamesh was looking for eternal life. Like, I don't understand why he wanted to be, why he wanted to live forever because in death he would be reunited with his love. So that was like a weird turn in the story, but I can't control it. That shit was made 4,000 years ago. So (laughs) (laughs) If I rewrote the story, I would not have made him look searching for, you know, the fountain of youth or anything like that. Like he would just be searching for death. He would want to find where Anki D was. So the way I reconcile that is the fact that, especially at the end, when he doesn't actually take it selfishly for himself, which would have been a normal thing to do. But he actually, when he gets that like plant, his plans are to take it back to his people. That I think is how I reconcile that. Cause like, maybe that is essentially like the full real reason that he was looking for it was because, okay, I also, I am 1000% having an existential freak out of the fact that death exists. I just lost the love of my life and now I'm afraid of death. But my bigger thing outside of that kind of like knee jerk reaction to grief is that I don't want anyone else to suffer the way I've suffered. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I don't want anyone else ever for the rest of their lives. You know, I am a king. I don't want anyone else that are beholden to me that are my people to ever have to experience the grief that I've just experienced if you kill someone. So that makes sense once he has the plant, once he learns about the plant. But remember that he went on that journey before knowing that the plant existed with the intention of becoming yeah infallible like unable to die so yeah that whole idea of him not like becoming immortal was just doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah all right especially given the fact that he's also demigodish so like yeah. you would think that he would potentially already have some like perks in that category but yeah for sure yeah okay do you have a seven words for gilgamesh um okay so be gay do crimes and don't suck (laughs) like i just feel like they're like their whole existences are just a very like epitome representation of like what you should just be doing with your life gilgamesh was like all right i'm a fucking demigod that's not what i chose but that's who i am so i'm gonna fuck everyone that i want uh you know i'm gonna be a good king even despite the fact that he was apparently exhausting, sexually exhausting all the people in his fucking kingdom, they were always still, when they talked about him, talking about how great of a king he was and how much they loved him. Uh-huh. So for me, that says that like he was a good dude. He wasn't like, you know, somebody who was being a piece of shit all the time to everyone. He yeah. was just somebody that like living life to the fullest. He needs to love his life. Like, yeah it's totally fine that the love of his life just so happened to be the same fucking gender as him because being queer is totally cool. So, yep. you know, be gay, do crimes. 
he wanted to go off and you know slay Humbaba even though some of the gods apparently didn't want him fucking to and he was doing it because at least you can kind of try to suppose that potentially Humbaba was something that was a menace to the people that were around his forest maybe maybe the people who needed to go traveling to other like places for trade or things like that maybe they had to go through the forest and then therefore maybe that was like something that was super fucking annoying that Gilgamesh as a king was like I feel like maybe I need to go deal with that shit yeah and so you know denying an actual fucking goddess your body purely because you're like nah I'm fucking married I'm happy enough and you're a piece of shit like that's some fucking king shit that's some king shit even if he wasn't a king so be gay do crimes and then just don't fucking suck yeah neither of them were awful people Enkidu nor Gilgamesh at least from the tablets that we have show them being like awful people they show them being very normal people very relatable responses to the crazy shit that's going on in their lives and like just wanting to like be with each other and like live their lives to the fullest as much as possible with each other and so like when they're like when Enkidu's life is coming to an end being upset because he can't be with his fucking husband anymore losing you know Gilgamesh on his end losing his husband then you know not wanting to let him go like that is some very relatable shit yeah I I just say I feel like anyone slash everyone who loses or has lost their significant other slash soulmate like that's some fucking real ass shit that's very relatable unfortunate um but relatable so like yeah big a do crimes and don't suck that's okay. my <laughs> that's my gilgamesh shit all right seven words for ducktales ducktales spin on alibaba's 40 thieves nice that's, that's what it was yeah is it very uh cut and dry there yeah for cut sure and dry several seasons worth of drama one show <laughs> nice ducktales is very much a in this movie anyway a like i'm gonna throw in every single type of fucking drama that happens yep and it just reminds me of all of the shows that you love and watch belovedly that shove all of the like drama that you don't need but into one season to try and like bam you to like keep watching Okay, so thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We want to give a huge shout out to our artist, Susan Dorda. You can check out her work at susandorta.com, S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. You can check us out on all the social medias or chat with us, interact with us. You can find us on- you can find us on twitter at allentown pod you can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com or we have a facebook at allentown presents yeah feel free to reach out if you have suggestions for books or movies you think we should watch or just random comments that you think we should hear about your opinions on our opinion of whatever and you were like Samantha, please shut up, but also shut up for this like five tiered response of why you need to shut up. Like, please send that. Give it to us. We'll read your dissertations about your opinions on our podcast. It's fine. We don't mind. We'll review your dissertations on our podcast. (laughs) We don't care. (laughs) Um, Also, um, whatever uh, 
whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, if it allows you to leave a review slash um, rating, please uh, leave us one slash both of those things. Uh, it really helps us with the algorithms within the podcast platforms, uh, being able to sort of rise to popularity to the uh, to the point that the platforms, um, you know, take us seriously, uh, offer us um, and suggest us uh, for people who have like-minded interests, things like that. It only helps us. It doesn't hurt us. But unfortunately, yeah, we just only at this time, you know, accept five-star reviews. Um, it's just like a weird glitch that um, has just happened across the entire internet. It's so strange. Um, so yeah, if you have a five-star review to leave, you should definitely leave it wherever, whatever platform you're on. Yes. So thank you so much for listening and we'll be back eventually someday for another episode of Real Lit. Real Lit.